Thank you. Please be seated. In the case of uh, Jim shot both sides et al. against His Majesty the King, for the appellants, Jim shot both sides et al. Uh, Gary Biffus, Brandon Miller, Eugene Meehan Kesey, Thomas Slade, for the Intervenor Treaty and First Nations of Alberta, Kate Gunn, for the Intervenor Lac Larange, Adlan K. Epp, Eric L. Pentland. Pour l'intervenante, Inu Takwekan Washat Makmani Utenam, Isabelle Boisvert Chastenay, Marie Claude André Grégoire. For the intervener, Robinson Huron Treaty, Anishinabek, Diane J. Corbière, Catherine Bois Parker Casey, and Christopher. Albinati. For the intervener, Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs, Carly Fox. For the interveners, Cowichan Tribes et al., David M. Robbins, Jessica Proudfoot, and Alexis C. Gianelia. For the intervener, Federation of Sovereign Indigenous Nations, Ron S. Maurice, and Geneviève Boulay. For the intervener, Assembly of First Nations, Adam Williamson and Stuart Woodkey. For the respondent, His Majesty the King, Dana Anderson, Anusha Arulia, and Amy Martin Leblanc. For the intervener, Attorney General of Ontario, Richard Ogden, and Imran Kamal. For the intervener, Attorney General of Saskatchewan, P. Mitch McAdam, KC. For the intervener, Attorney General of Alberta, Neil Dobson, and Heather A. Campbell. Mr. Beefus. This case is about an unfulfilled treaty promise. I will discuss the inability of the Blood Tribe to vindicate uh, that broken promise by obtaining a remedy in court and my colleague Mr. Miller will discuss the change that was affected by section 35 and the Crown prerogative. Roadmap of my submissions, uh, I uh, will talk about the nature of the treaty breach, the sparse pre-1982 case law, legal barriers uh, to bringing that case forward and that there was no realistic alternative uh, for the blood tribe in this case. Three key points about the nature of the breach in this case uh, from the trial decision are one, uh, the blood tribe leadership was never shown the boundaries uh, at the time that their reserve was set out. Second, this was, these were findings by Justice Zinn. Second, that 102.5 square miles were taken away to accommodate third party interests without any kind of surrender. And it shows again that Canada felt it could alter reserve boundaries with impunity. Again, that was a finding of Justice Zinn. And the third one was, when the Blood Tribe raised a concern about the size of the reserve, Canada's agent, Mr. Pocklican, responded in a manner the court found to be unconscionable that they had got more land than they were entitled. It wasn't just a miscalculation. <clears throat> I'm sorry to interrupt you at this time, but I have a, just a general question for you. 
Uh, is that your argument that uh, the prescription period will start only in 1982? Yes. How come you took action in 1980? The, I understand the question is how come they started a statement of claim in 1980? Uh, the, um, my answer to that is, um, I mean, they, they knew from 1976 that uh, they had a claim because that's when they filed their claim uh, with the minister. And uh, uh, when the minister uh, rejected that claim, uh, they were put in the position that they didn't have any choice. If they wanted to move forward, then they had to put, bring something in court. Um, you know, at that time, um, uh, as, as we all know, uh, there were some cases that were uh, winding their way uh, through the courts. Uh, people were discussing those ideas at the time, uh, the ideas that are in the statement of claim, but at that time they were just ideas. They hadn't been fleshed out by the courts. So they filed it in 1980 and uh, the law changed. I mean, at, at the time that they filed it, uh, Garan was winding its way through the courts. Of course, they had the uh, Calder decision. So those were the ideas that they had available to them to try and file a statement of claim in 1980. They did not file the statement of claim because just based on an idea, the, when the statement of claim was filed in 1980, you were of the view that you had a cause of action. They were of the view that they had, a, you know, they, they put in the statement of claim uh, fiduciary duty. As you know, that had not been fleshed out yet. Garan was just working its way through the courts. Uh, so the main claim was uh, for breach of fiduciary duty in the 1980 statement of claim. There was also a claim for breach of contract, though the case law, um, you know, the most honest decision I could find uh, in reviewing the case law is the decision we have in our materials of Batiste where the judge expresses some frustration saying, you know, we don't really have any guidance from the courts whether these things are uh, going to be treated as international treaties or contracts or what are they? I don't know how to deal with this. So the situation that lawyers faced at that time was the same. How do we do a pleading on this? Well, they put contract in, you know, as we know from uh, the Court of Ontario Court of Appeal and Restool, they've told us these aren't contracts and contract isn't a good idea. They don't work as contracts. But at the time, um, lawyers were struggling to find, well, what, what, how can we uh, try to bring a case forward? And that was the best idea they could come up with at can the time. I, can I just follow up on, on Mr. Beffos? The, you're certainly taking the position today that there was a breach of a treaty. Yes. Yes. So the continuing obligation argument that the Attorney General of Saskatchewan advances, the idea that the Crown does not breach a treaty when it fails to set apart sufficient land to fulfill the promise, that that's not the breach, it's a continuing obligation, thus limitation doesn't apply. That's not, you're, you're not relying on that idea. Well, I, I think it's a great argument. I, well, I can <laughs> we see made that, it at trial. Unfortunately, Justice Zinn didn't agree with us. Well, my point is not that it's a good or bad argument. My point is you're not relying on it here because we, it's, we, it we, sounds we, at loggerheads with the, the, the breach theory that you're advancing. We, we can't because we didn't appeal Justice Zinn's ruling on that point. Is there any evidence in the record about the value of the land uh, that that's, constitutes the unfulfilled treaty um, <laughs> obligation? I, I'm sure it's enormous, and it's probably more than $150 million, but what, is there anything in the record? <laughs> there, there isn't anything on the record. What we know uh, is, um, so we know uh, from Justice Zinn's ruling, it's 162.5 square miles. 
Now, Justice Zinn's ruling is in the middle of a trial. We're actually in the middle of a trial right now. The trial is bifurcated, so we haven't had the remedy portion of that trial yet where that evidence would have been led. Um, so, you know, uh, 162.5 square miles, 104,000 acres. Um, you know, you can Google it and find out that you'd be lucky to find a good piece of farmland in southern Alberta for $5,000. So there's no evidence, but, you know, that's what uh, give you an idea of what just the land value is without talking about loss of use. <clears throat> so they uh, uh, reduced uh, reserve in this case um, was confirmed by Canada by an order in council uh, in 1889. So what we say is the nature of the breach is important because we get asked this question all the time, well, what about these annuities cases or what about hunting cases? But it's the nature of the breach. And what we say is treaties, just as Justice Blair said in Agawa, aren't self-executing. In other words, they need a vehicle to carry them into justiciability. And so in the case of annuities case, uh, the one case we have in our materials, and there's very few of these cases, but there is the Henry case, the vehicle that the court uses is section 79 of the Indian Act, which allows them to enforce debts. So that's the vehicle. Um, in the case of, of uh, Drever, the vehicle that was used was a trust. So there was another legal vehicle because the treaty itself wasn't self-executing. But in this case, because the breach is a breach to provide land, there is no vehicle. There's nothing in the Indian Act about land. Um, and so the, the treaty is not self-executing. There's no way to uh, bring that issue of land before court. And the only example of that in the common law world uh, is the We Parada case, which we put in our materials. Now, that's a New Zealand case, but that's the only case uh, anywhere in the common law world where a First Nation on its own attempted to bring a claim for breach of treaty in front of a common law court to obtain a remedy for what they said was wrongful removal of land from the reserve. Is, you, is your position that this treaty isn't self-executing or that no treaty, no treaty pre-1982 could be enforced without uh, implementing legislation of some sort? So what is the, how broad is your proposition? The, the, the point I was making was that you have to look at the particular promise. Some, some of the uh, clauses uh, were able to be enforced because you know, there was another provision like a provision in the Indian Act, but there is no uh, provision for land promises. And they are not, uh, you, you, there's no way to, for a court to uh, enforce uh, that promise because there's no provision in the Indian Act. So as to Crown Indigenous treaties prior to 1982, I would agree with your uh, proposition that they were not enforceable in the court. Well, what about uh, the treaty in Marshall, the peace and friendship treaties? I mean, those, Mr. Marshall didn't get a, a treaty right in 1982. He had a right to fish for uh, eel even before 1982. So how do you deal with, some treaties are in, implemented through legislation, modern treaties in particular, but they don't need to be implemented by legislation. So, or in any other method, they are, um, enforceable at common law, uh, at least after 1982, and their solemn promises flow flowing from the honor of the crown. So why is that, what, what is the break in 1982, I guess, is what I'm... Uh, 
Well, the, 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 the break in 1982, of course, is Section 35, uh, which does uh, give the treaty a vehicle uh, to enforceability. Um, and, you know, uh, or, or, our... or does it? Does it? Because uh, my understanding of what happened in 1982 and the effect of 35-1 is not that it created, nor was it the source of Aboriginal and treaty rights, it simply limited the ability of the Crown to derogate from them or to extinguish them. And so, in a sense, nothing changed except the, the power of Parliament, in particular, to, to, to act in a way that was contrary to Aboriginal treaty rights was, was limited by the constitutional measure. But the rights themselves, in a sense, were unaffected. That, that's my understanding of the effect. And, of course, I, I did divide our submissions, and I apologize for that, uh, Justice Rowe, uh, that, you know, my, my colleague, Mr. Miller, will be way better at answering that question than I am because that's his, his uh, area. Um, what I w will submit briefly, and I'll let him expand on this, is that Section 35 went beyond uh, merely... Uh, uh, being a, you know, a, something to provide constitutional protection to prevent uh, the Parliament from overriding these rights. It went further and created uh, positive, uh, substantive uh, rights, and it churned what before was uh, um, uh, a political right, essentially, in a treaty into a legal right that could be recognized by the court. I think it's a portion of time, sorry to interrupt once again. Just to mention, I forgot to mention that my colleague, Justice Subban Sawin, is with us uh, and uh, could intervene in the file. Thank you. You, you accept that pre-1982, a treaty right could be extinguished, though, right? It could be extinguished. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, it wasn't suddenly revived uh, in 1982 by Section 35. Absolutely. And it was uh, agreed in this case that the... Uh, treaty land entitlement uh, of the Blood Tribe uh, under the Blackfoot Treaty had not been extinguished. But you are correct that Parliament could, and essentially uh, Sakia, Supreme Court of Canada decision in 1964, effectively says that, uh, that they could even uh, infringe uh, treaty right inadvertently. Uh, there was uh, no protection for them, other than the limited protection that was provided by uh, Section 88 and the N NRTA prior to 1982. Those were the limits of the protection. And do you accept that pr before 1982, a treaty right could be prescribed, subject, uh, subject to prescription? I mean, Subject to prescription, correct. So you accept that? Yes. Okay. <clears throat> I mean, that's just a function of parliamentary supremacy. I mean, what the, 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 between the, uh, the, the Parliament of Canada and the legislatures of the provinces, there was an exhaustive uh, uh, assignment of, of uh, jurisdiction or uh, legislative competence uh, because there was no uh, constitutional limitation on that. There was division between the two. After 1982, there were certain... Uh, areas of rights that were subject to protection, notably Aboriginal and treaty rights under 35.1, and rights that appertain to individuals and groups, notably under the Charter. But before 1982, 
uh, at least under the uh, understanding that most of us have had, parliamentary supremacy meant, which is just a, a general statement of what I think my colleague, Justice Jamala, said, it was open to Parliament to act uh, without, any, without any limit because it was seen as supreme. Um, I would agree with that statement with this uh, caution that comes out of the historic cases. Um, so, you know, we know there's these three historic cases that are talked about over and over again. There's the, uh, the first one, St. Catharines, the uh, second one is annuities, and the third one is Siebold. And what uh, we submit those cases stand for is, in fact, uh, Parliament uh, was handcuffed and didn't rule supreme in this area because the um, uh, Judicial Committee uh, ruled that, oh yes, Parliament, you have the responsibility under 9124, but all the land rights are, are with the province. Even uh, uh, if the, as I said in Siebold, uh, if it's a situation where you've taken a surrender of reserve land and you have obligations to the band, or you have obligations to set up a reserve, that depends on the goodwill of the province. You, as the federal parliament, have no authority to deal with that. So subject to uh, that caveat that uh, the Judicial Committee created, um, Parliament is supreme. <clears throat> so they, um, one of the things that comes out of those historic cases and has found its way now into uh, some of the modern uh, case law uh, is the um, dissenting decisions of um, uh, Justice Gwynne. And uh, Justice Gwynne um, in Siebold said, this uh, anomaly in the law that I've described of how the federal government is responsible uh, for uh, First Nations and their reserves, um, but they have no ability to carry out that responsibility because land is in the hands of the province. Uh, Justice Gwynne, at that time, in a dissenting opinion, said that made the uh, treaties uh, a mockery. Um, and I, I know now that uh, Justice Gwynne's decision is pointed to to say, well, you see, um, you know, the honor of the crown was already uh, uh, a legal concept uh, at his time. But the point uh, that we want to make <clears throat> about Justice Gwynne's decisions, they are the dissent. They are what the law was not until, the, until his dissent was started to be referred to in cases like Marshall and Desotel. <clears throat> the uh, annuities case uh, from that time um, says, uh, the Judicial Committee said that the promises and treaties were simply a personal obligation of the governor. And the, the point that I find interesting about the annuities case is, is, as you know, winding its way through the courts right now, and I believe coming to this court shortly, is the Restool decision from the Ontario Court of Appeal. If, if the annuities case from 1897 decided anything on behalf of First Nations, you would think that that would be some discussion in the Restool decision, but it's not. I mean, the First Nation just now is litigating uh, its right to its annuity uh, under its treaty. 
So, you know, the, the, the cases, those historic cases, as much as um, it was suggested in the Court of Appeal that they anchor a 120-year unbroken line of cases, our submission is, if you look at them carefully, they do not. <clears throat> the other point I wanted to make was that uh, prior to 1982, First Nations faced many barriers to uh, bringing litigation forward. And those barriers are well set out uh, by uh, uh, Professor Coyle in his article uh, addressing Aboriginal land rights uh, in Ontario. And he lists those, we have them in our materials, about um, that uh, First Nations had limited access to records um, uh, up to the late 20th century. Uh, and in fact, uh, in the Ontario Intervenors Factum, they have put a case in from the Supreme Court, um, Thuan from 2017, which traces the history of the Crown Im immunity from discovery. <clears throat> the second point that uh, Professor Coyle makes is that the First Nations had a lack of access to lawyers, uh, which existed from 1927 to 1951. So again, uh, uh, not really an unbroken line. Um, and then he points out that First Nations face controls over their spending and supervision of their affairs by federal Indian agents who uh, were uh, active in First Nation affairs right up until the 80s. Um, and finally, there's uh, many procedural and technical defenses unique to suits against the Crown. Uh, some of them are mentioned in Rastoul, like uh, Crown Immunity. Uh, Calder uh, was decided because the, uh, the applicant didn't have a fiat. Uh, Pawas is another case that shows the kind of things that First Nations face. So in Pawas, the First Nation comes uh, to the court and they say, well, yeah, you got a treaty, but you're an individual. Um, you have no standing to enforce the treaty. And then the judge goes on to say, in the same paragraph, he says, and oh, by the way, even though it seems to me it might be the whole community to enforce this, uh, they don't have any legal personality, so they can't enforce it either. So that's the kind of things that uh, First Nations faced. Um, I just want to ask, um, sorry, I'm on the screen here. So if we do not accept that Section 35 created a cause of action for the breach of treaty claims, what uh, is your position? What would be the appropriate remedy in that case? Um, well, we, uh, we do have uh, phase three of the trial. Uh, it hasn't been scheduled. It's depending on the outcome of uh, this hearing. Um, but in the statement of claim, um, the Blood Tribe also uh, made a claim for declarations. And uh, our, I anticipate that uh, if uh, we weren't able to proceed with um, uh, a remedy for breach of treaty, then that would be the recourse that our client might look to. When you say a declaration, what do you mean over and above what was already granted in, the, in terms of the declaration of breach, uh, or the finding of breach? Uh, yes, yeah, declaration. What, what, what is, because what is, I've looked at the statement of claim, what, what uh, declaration are you seeking, assuming uh, based on the premise that my colleague just put to you. Um... I mean, I, I don't want to be committed to it because we haven't done phase three yet and, and some thought has to be put into it, but I can give you some ideas of the things that we might consider. So obviously, um, 
there was a finding at trial that a reserve had been created um, from the 1982 survey, which was a reserve of 650 square miles. So we might uh, seek a declaration that a reserve had been created in, uh, of 650 miles. So you, you, might, you might seek that declaration. You might seek a declaration um, that had never, uh, another finding that it had uh, uh, never been surrendered. You might uh, seek a declaration uh, that um, under uh, the Blackfoot Treaty, the Blood Tribe were entitled to a reserve of 710 square miles. Those would be some ideas. Aren't those already sort of subsumed in the findings of fact of Justice Zinn? Yes, though, um, though declarations were not issued because, like I said, we we're kind of in the middle of a trial and, and that phase hasn't reached it. But yes, you are correct about that. And is it your position that those declarations sort of uh, along the lines of Manitoba Métis may put a bit of a moral obligation on the Crown to do something? Because at the moment, until you filed, you know, the day before you filed your materials, there was no willingness to negotiate, but now they're willing to negotiate. And so making that sort of statement uh, in this decision rather than in a new phase may be a way of actually bringing, putting some moral pressure on the Crown. Is that, is that your view? Yes. I, I, I don't want to get technical here, but at a certain point, one is compelled to, because we are a court of law. Um, the, uh, the, the declaratory judgment is uh, an important innovation in the common law depending on your perspective, of relatively recent origin. It's only about 150 years old. Uh, it was available in Scots law before then. What it usually deals with is if there is a given set of facts, here are the legal rights and obligations that follow from it. Where it differs from an ordinary judgment is that it does not make an order. It does not say, and therefore, you are enjoined, and therefore, damages are to be paid in a certain amount, etc. But it, it makes a determination of legal rights and obligations, but without a consequential order. This is, I think, distinct from findings of fact, as in what occurred. And as I said, I don't want to focus too much on the technical differences between findings of fact which are binding because they have not been challenged and they're, they're taken to be settled as to what occurred versus what follows in terms of legal rights and obligations. So um, I, picking up on Justice Jamal's point, I think uh, I'm, my ear is very open shall we say, to the idea of uh, de declaratory statements. But I think we have to be mindful of the distinction between findings of fact and a declaration as to legal rights and obligations. And I'll just leave it at that for now. Yeah. Well, thank you, Justice Rowe. And, and our, our position isn't different. And I, it's, it's over time that I should sit down and let uh, my colleague. Well, can I? I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to slow you down. Just to follow up on that. Just so I understand correctly, the, the, if here we are in the middle of the proceedings in first instance, should we be cautious about making declarations about poisoning the waters for the f next phase of the, of the process? Do you see what I mean? I mean, if we get ahead of ourselves, Supreme Court, uh, 
runs into the china shop makes its declarations and suddenly the the trial judge is is you know can't doesn't have the freedom that trial judges need to do their work yeah i mean i uh, it's hard for me to say that or speak to that uh i think you've put your finger on a concern we have um because you know the it's one of the difficulties with a bifurcated trial you find yourself you know in the in the supreme court and the trial isn't finished yet and so what about declarations um you know I, I, I share your concern, but I don't have the ultimate answer to it, I'm afraid. What about the order? Can I just ask you about the order, the judgment of uh, Justice Zinn? Because Justice Zinn's judgment is interesting. It's, it's uh, the first three paragraphs anyway. He orders, uh, part of the judgment is that under the Treaty Land Entitlement, Blood Tribe was entitled to a reserve of 710 square miles. Canada uh, is in breach uh, of the treaty land entitlement, and then all claims are time barred. Um, he, he could have simply said that any claims of the blood tribe uh, under any treaty land entitlement are prescribed. The first two paragraphs seem to me to be what it is you, you, you were, you're asking for by way, what you're calling a declaration, but they're already part of the judgment of the trial judge um, as a prelude to the uh, uh, claim to the observation that the claims are time barred. So I, I'm trying to understand what are you asking for over and above uh, paragraphs one and two of the judgment? You know, there, there, that is the main, that would be the main thing, uh, Justice Jamal. I mean, there would be, we obviously in phase three, we would give it some careful consideration, but th those would be the main things, correct? Thank you. Chief Justice, Justice Supreme Court, I will pick off where my friend Mr. Beefus ended. I know that you're getting into the issue with the declaration. Again, uh, the bifurcation in my submission, that should be dealt with there. I can tell you that in my looking at this from a constitutional perspective, uh, if a declaration is issued in light of uh, the facts that uh, Justice Jamal just read, uh, the position would be that from the date of that declaration, the honor of the Crown would dictate that the Crown has to make the request of Alberta under uh, the NRTA and fulfill the TLE. That would be the consequence of the declaration. Whether or not um, that is appropriate or not is something that hasn't been briefed in this court. I know my friends, uh, I got cognizance of it from reading their intervener brief, and as I said in our uh, ex-condensed book and oral uh, submission summary. Uh, we were caught by surprise by that in the sense that we, we didn't believe we were here to argue about declarations. This is the liability uh, phase uh, of the hearing dealing with limitation periods uh, with respect to liability. So I would just add that. But uh, if that point goes against you, if the limitation point goes against you, what's your position on declarations? We would seek the declaration in lieu. And I can advise, we had advised the trial team of the Crown of that and they're aware that uh, notwithstanding whatever the decision was here, we intended to proceed for that declaration before Justice Zinn. So uh, with that uh, part aside, I'll begin first by discussing the Crown prerogative. You said, you said before Justice Zinn, are you not asking this court to make that declaration? If the court would like to make that declaration, if they find that our liability argument with respect to limitation periods um, does not uh, succeed uh, on the wording 
with respect to what Justice Jamal said regarding the entitlement with the quantity of land, et cetera, that would be the appropriate declaration. And that, but what you said about what would flow from the honour of the Crown and the uh, request from Canada to Alberta under the NRTA, none of that's before us. That's going to be debated. Canada may take a different position about what the honour of the Crown requires. That's not before us. We simply affirm, and in fact, even Canada is saying the appeal should be dismissed, which would mean that the judgment of the trial judge with those words excised that they disagree with would be would be um, the order that would be made. And yes. that would mean that you would be entitled to make your request under the NRTA and uh, under the uh, honor of the Crown. Right, and so in that, just so there's an understanding, as you note that Alberta has opposed that that's even available. Uh, of course, we can't force Canada to make that request. It's never at least been litigated. It would result in yet another proceeding if they refuse. If they don't refuse or the court orders them to, then they would have to make the request and Alberta would be able to contest it under Section 19 of the Federal Court Act. So here, that is the result of the declaration. I just want the court to understand. That's the merry-go-round that uh, the Constitution uh, would create. And that is something that may or may not be uh, that this court is fine uh, on these facts issuing the declaration. But we note that uh, the respondent has only dealt with it in an intervener reply and we haven't really made uh, a full pitch on that in writing. Uh, so I just wanted to note that for the court. But so I just want to make a logical point, uh, I think, which is uh, limitation periods do not extinguish rights. They bar a remedy. And if you say, ah, uh, there's a right, and then you add to that plus honor the crown equals legally enforceable obligation, then the limitation period disappears. And, it, I mean, I understand the logic of it, but it seems to me almost a sleight of hand, right? Because you say, well, the limitation period is there, the remedy is barred, but then the remedy is not barred. So um, I'm just, it seems to me to be, um, it's sort of internally incoherent, but maybe I'll have to struggle with that. Right. So I will uh, first then, and I'll come back uh, to the declaration. I don't want to uh, waste my time before you, and I want to bring you back to the actual liability uh, with respect to the availability of an actual. So when you come back to it, sorry to interrupt you, and I don't want to, you've been interrupted, so I'll let you go with your argument. When you come back to it, think, advise us as to whether there might be unintended consequences of our making a declaration, given the bifurcated proceedings, in which case it may be wise for us to restrain ourselves, if that's in the best interest of yes. your client. So uh, dealing first with the issue of the Crown prerogative, and we submit that prior to 1982, uh, whether or not uh, treaties were fulfilled and obligations under them rested solely within the Crown prerogative. And I, I'll start with a, a brief quote from uh, the great A.V. Dicey regarding the prerogatives. And as he states, every act with executive government can lawfully do without the authority of an act of parliament is done in virtue of the royal prerogative. Now, what we do know is, is that reserve creation is done under the Crown prerogative. We know that entering into treaties 
is done under the Crown prerogative. And those are the, that's the power to do that. Then the question is this, is what is the authority of the Crown to carry out treaty obligations? The only power for the Crown to carry out their treaty obligations rests in the Crown prerogative. There is no statute, there is no common law that authorized the carrying out of treaty obligations. And that's not just the law of prerogatives, that's right directly under the rule of law, which of course a lot of it originated with Dicey and this court has accepted as a constitutional principle in the Quebec reference case and even prior, is that the authority to carry out a treaty obligation could only rest with the prerogative. It didn't come from Parliament. I, I beg your pardon, but I, I don't understand that that's quite in conformity with, with what Dicey said. Uh, Dicey said that the Crown prerogative is the source of the authority where there is no source in statute. But the implication of that, and I think it's gen the general understanding, is that to the extent that Parliament legislates, it displaces the Crown prerogative. Now, to the extent that Parliament doesn't legislate, I think you're absolutely right that it's, it's the exercise of Crown prerogative which is the basis for the uh, federal government to fulfill its obligations. But I don't think it's closed to Parliament. Right? Okay. No, and of course the Crown prerogative, and uh, as it had, and that's how treaties became judiciable, has eliminated the Crown prerogative. Of course, the Crown prerogative originally existed in early, early English times. It was just that before even Parliament was there and uh, the Civil War, etc. all of that changed things. Uh, statute, of course, can displace that. And essentially, in, in fact, in Gurin, in a way, this court ruled that that was the case there. It was Section 18 of the Indian Act that actually created uh, or was where it recognized, as Justice Wilson put it, or uh, established a fiduciary duty, uh, Section 18 being the surrender provisions. The difference with reserve creation is, is there's no statute. There was no statute. So even applying the Gurin common law from 1984, we didn't have a statutory hook to hang our hat on, which was not just an issue was the indigenous interest there, but the court found that it was section 18 that recognized or uh, uh, essentially satisfied the court that it allowed for jurisdiction. And that's the difference between a surrender and a reserve creation. And because reserve creation had no statutory mechanisms of enforcement, you didn't get the benefit of a Gurin-type decision at that time prior to Section 35. And in my submission, and my, I, I submit that Agawa is 100% correct, prior to 1982, you had your section, first of all, they started off with cases with respect to uh, section 9124 of the BNA Act, and those are such as Wesley, etc. Uh, and those cases are all uh, primarily about hunting uh, and the inapplicability of provincial laws. In 1951, uh, of course, they passed what was then section 87, which is now section 88. It was mostly in response to uh, a lower level fight on 9124. Uh, I believe it's the Commanda decision. It went the other way. It said that the provincial parliament could actually infringe on treaty rights and, and aboriginal rights. So they put in section 88 or section 87, which is now 88, to clarify that. 
litigants then stop relying on 9124 and primarily rely on 88. Then you also had the cases like Henry and Drever uh, that relied basically on the provisions of the Indian Act, which were then Section 79, dealing with contracts, debts, and wrongs. Though Drever itself just talks about trust and created a trust as the vehicle, uh, it didn't enforce the treaty, and neither did Henry. It, it simply said that these annuities are a debt, and yes, the court there, Justice Burbage, uh, who was, actually was the author of the criminal code, he's quite the, quite the fellow and the first federal court judge, he, uh, yeah, he comments it's a, it's a contract. But the problem with the blood tribe, even if you did proceed on the contract theory as was pled, it's not, this, this treaty wasn't enforceable as a contract. And I've provided you the decision from the uh, New Brunswick Court of Appeal of Kelly and Nevers on that point because there was no land description, it required a survey, it required that survey had to be based upon the count of uh, individual blood tribe members. And because of that, as a contract, if you follow Kelly and Nevers, it wasn't an enforceable contract. So you couldn't proceed really under the contract theory. Now, I understand the question, well, why did you file? The fact is, is they went through the uh, ministerial uh, established claims proceeding uh, through the minister, filing in 76. The minister denies that in 78. So I'm sure that Mr. Young Casey uh, was sitting there going, well, what do we do? And he wanted to file within two years, and they pled something. There was theories in academic commentary about the contract theory, about the trust theory, and then about the fiduciary duty. It was theories. And there has it was no case that said otherwise or uh, that said uh, for or against. Gurin, it has to be remembered, and this court stated in Sparrow, that it has to be remembered that Gurin was decided after Section 35.1 came to be. The court specifically says that. And what I take from that comment is this, is that we know, and prior to Gurin being decided, I believe Hill v. the Church of Scientology had been decided, or maybe it was a little bit later, but the court recognized that constitutional values can influence common law. And I would submit to you what Gurin really was, why that changed from what Justice Ledane said in the court below regarding the, everything being under the political trust doctrine and, and merely moral obligations, et cetera, and likely as well the Crown prerogative, that Section 35.1 changed that and it influenced the common law in Gurin. And that's what I submit the court is saying when they say in Sparrow that section, it has to be remembered that Gurin came about after section 35.1, not before. Mr. Miller, what do you make of the submission of some interveners like a Robinson Huron Treaty to the effect that treaties has, have always been enforceable? Well, there's only one intervener that, uh, well, one intervener and uh, the government interveners that, that say that. Of course, it's in their interest for this court to retroactively find that treaties were enforceable with respect to the government interveners. But I would submit Agua's correct and most, most correct in stating the law uh, exactly as it was in 1983 was Professor Douglas Sanders. And that uh, article is at tab 27, page 119 of the condensed book. And of course, Douglas Sanders was an eminent uh, legal counsel and professor in this area prior to 1982. And he says this, and it's in our fact as well. 
So I'll start with the, the first or the, the second paragraph highlighting is, what happened to such non-treaty promises, non-legal treaty promises when Section 35 came into force? The treaty promise had not been legally extinguished in the past, for they had never legally existed. If existing Aboriginal and treaty rights in Section 35.1 only referred to treaty rights which had a legal existence, then the section only applies to money payments which were enforceable by contract law. Otherwise, the courts were enforcing the Indian Act or the Constitution and not the treaty as such. We are driven to the conclusion that Section 35, for the first time, gave legal enforceability to these previously unenforceable treaty rights. He then goes on to say at the last sentence highlighted that Section 35 is now uh, the only logical basis for holding that treaties as such are legally enforceable in Canadian law. And that is on just after the, the eve of the passing of the Charter. And it considers all of those uh, situations that we have here. Ogawa essentially says the same thing. This, this treaty provision, the treaty land entitlement, was one of the such treaty provisions that was unenforceable. There was no ability at law to get a remedy. It wasn't a contract, and if it was an international treaty, of course that's not enforceable without statutory reference and incorporation, and Agawa says that... When, when did it become enforceable then? The, the TLE? April 17, 1982, with the passing of Section 35.1. And, and I can tell you that the Crown, in 1980, took the position that the TLE wasn't enforceable, and it's directly in their Statement of Defense. And that... But there were amendments to the Statement of Claim in 1999. Yes, it was amended, but in the... Much later. Yeah, but the thing is, is in... Uh, when we filed the original statement of claim, which you've brought up as issue from 1980, the Crown filed a statement of defense, and it's provided to you in our condensed book, and it is at tab 25. And if I take you there to paragraph 4, uh, which is on page 112, paragraph 4, they actually plead that there was no duty to provide the reserve within accordance of the TLE. They say there's no duty. So if there's no duty, legal duty, political duty, what have you, they're saying, and they're taking the position as the law stood in 1980, that this wasn't a legal duty. They simply state that they deny that under Treaty 7, the Crown owed the Blackfoot, or the Blackfeet, the Blood, the Sarsi Band of Indians, a further duty to assign them a reserve on the basis of their numbers at the time. And they actually plead that again under paragraph 7, in relation to the 1883 document that they pled was a treaty, an amended Treaty 7. So you have the Crown having pled that these aren't legally enforceable. You have the law stating in the academic commentary stating from the time they weren't enforceable. The Crown has not provided a single piece of academic commentary on this. We've provided several. That say treaties were always enforceable. Well, uh, you've cited uh, Professor Sanders, but Professor Sanders also says the treaty promises had not been legally extinguished in the past, for they had never legally existed. Yeah. So, in other words, I asked Mr. Bafus about the uh, law of extinguishment pre-1982, and he acknowledged that treaty rights could be extinguished before 1982. Yeah. He acknowledged that they could be subject to limitation periods, which, parenthetically, I would say, presupposes that there's a cause of action because otherwise what does the limitation period apply to? So the consequence of saying that there is no legally enforceable 
obligation until 1982 seems to be that there cannot be pre-82 uh, extinguishment well, or pre-82 limitation periods applying to treaty claims. So it's true that this article says what it says, but it seems to be to be inconsistent with a whole body of our law. And so I'd like to understand how that so I works. Can't, I can tell you there doesn't exist a case prior to 1982 that uh, a treaty was enforced outside of Section 9124 in considering a jurisdictional issue, outside Section 88 of the Indian Act, or outside the sort of Section 79 situation. There's none. There was no common law that said a breach of treaty or that the Crown is legally obligated to fulfill treaty obligations. That didn't happen until the first time, which was stated in, the, uh, uh, in 1997 in the Badger decision. So this court had had treaties come before them in a number of cases under Section 88 in particular, Sykia, others, and at no time did this court say what the court then said in Badger, that treaties were legally binding on the Crown. And that's because at that time, the treaties were subject to the Crown prerogative. And the Crown prerogative, being the power to fulfill treaty obligations, it's also immune from consideration. Okay, but um, it's interesting. We're back into A.V. Dicey world now. But um, I have always understood the uh, relationship between the sovereignty of the Canadian state and the obligations owed to uh, indigenous peoples, either under treaty or on indigenous rights, is that while the Canadian state is sovereign, there are obligations that appertain to the exercise of that sovereignty, and that they, the Crown is bound by its honor, whatever, and, and by legal obligations to fulfill its commitments. And to say that, um, uh, you know, Crown prerogative or parliamentary supremacy in the end before 1982, it was open to the federal government to say, we will extinguish, we will act in a way that derogates from, and I think that's the conventional view. But it didn't, it doesn't mean that the obligations didn't exist, and to the extent that they were not extinguished or derogated from, they continued to subsist, and then in 1982, suddenly the, the authority of Parliament or the Crown to derogate or to extinguish was almost eliminated. It wasn't entirely eliminated. So it, the obligations were always there, it seems to me. Well, the obligations may have been there, but they were considered political or within the Crown prerogative. And you have commentary to that effect, and even from this court, particularly Trash O.J. talking about the uh, obligations to First Nations, and that's a Treaty 3 case, uh, talking that they're political in nature, the goodwill of the sovereign. You have Lord Watson uh, talking to the same effect. Uh, all of the academic articles we've provided you, it's not just Sanders, talk about those issues. In particular, um, I know that it's also in the article we've provided you. Uh, my hovercraft is full of eels from Professor Leonard Rotman. He talks about how those comments in both St. Catherine's Milling as well as in the annuities case 
were adopted in Psychia uh, and other cases and that they recognized that treaty enforceability was merely a political obligation or personal obligation of the sovereign. I understand the obligation was there. Unfortunately, it wasn't legally enforceable in the breach. To enforce it in the breach would be to actually question the honour of the Crown and to say that the Crown didn't act honourably. So when, uh, when your friends say at paragraph 33 of their factum, in response to your position that treaties were considered political matters before 82, and they say it directly conflicts with the jurisprudence, so they, you, you, these can all be explained away. You say Henry, Drever, Powis, Wesley, White and Bob, Sikia, Moses, Dennis, Taylor, Tenesco, yes. all of the, uh, not to mention annuities and the Hay River. These, these can all be explained away. None of these deal with it. So when, when indigenous peoples were relying on treaty terms to defend themselves against say regulatory or criminal prosecution, this was not rooted in anything that contradicts your position on no, the No, when they defended themselves in regulatory uh, proceedings, they either relied on Section 88 or Section 9124. You won't find a case where it says that the treaty in of itself protects them. It doesn't. It didn't. In fact, Psychia basically said otherwise. It said Parliament can do what it wants and that the treaty, even though the Migratory Birds Convention breached it, they didn't find that there was a, a breach. They just said that it basically interfered with it and it prevailed. So at the end of the day, there is not a single case prior to 1982 where a treaty was relied on as a common law right. The common law didn't recognize it as a right. And that's one of the things that I submit this court has to do. As part of reconciliation under Section 35.1, this court also has to reconcile the history of the common law's deficiency in protecting Indigenous rights with the goal of reconciliation and where we're going today. And by retroactively uh, recognizing the right, or recognizing that treaties were enforceable, which as Douglas Sanders said, he didn't think this court would ever do. By retroactively recognizing it in order for the Crown to avoid uh, a claim on the basis of a limitation period, I submit that is just not in keeping with Section 35.1 at all. This court needs to come to grips with the history of the common law's deficiencies in, in an effort to achieve the goals of reconciliation. The common law was deficient. It didn't allow the enforcement of this specific treaty right because it wasn't recognized in a statute and it couldn't be dressed up as a trust. We tried to argue the trust in the court below. You saw, in fact, we relied on Drever to say we had a trust. That was dismissed. We didn't have a trust. We didn't have a statutory right. All we had was Section 35.1. But the, just to understand the I suppose the logic or the implication of your position is that uh, the treaties were not enforceable before 1982 and therefore the limitation period didn't run. Treaties became enforceable only in 1982 and therefore thereafter limitation periods begin to operate. That's correct. And how come, how come the amendments were brought in 1999? Right. It's, it's still prescription barred. Right, so they were dealing with, uh, the, the amendments issue was dealt with in the court below. Uh, we won that and the, and the Crown didn't appeal. Uh, that matter has been decisively decided by uh, uh, Justice uh, Zinn 
the amendments, we, we proceeded, they were proceeded under the amendment provisions under the rules of court, federal court, and because the, the pleading of section 35.1 uh, rose from the same facts in the original pleading, the limitation period was infected. That's the law. And he found that that's the case, and it wasn't appealed. So the first, uh, the, so the statement of claim filed in 1980 had uh, interrupted the running of the prescription. The, is it your point? On the no, no, is that there's no, with respect to the, the delay in the amendment that Justice Wagner's making yeah. reference to, it was inconsequential and dealt with by Justice Zinn, and he ruled in our favor, and the Crown never appealed that point. Well, the can, amendment was valid. Can I get you back? I mean, the argument that you put forward in terms of no juridical basis to enforce treaty rights pre-1982, I understand that that preserves your claim, but there was another way you could have argued this, which is you can't have limitations, periods, in, in respect of treaty rights, whether it's before 1982 or after 1982, and you haven't argued that. Well, we did at trial. We argued everything. But you're not arguing that here. We didn't appeal it. Uh, they, they were dismissed. The, the argument there was, was twofold, was actually a lot what uh, the interveners are saying, and then partly uh, with respect to 9124. Uh, yes, uh, we were just, the clients were content with the ruling they had for the, the treaty land entitlement under section 35.1, and the Crown appealed solely on limitations, and so we dealt with it that way. But we, we dealt with it there. I would submit, and to be fair to the interveners, though we submit our case turns on whether or not uh, there was the legal basis to bring this specific treaty claim, a TLE, prior to 1982 determines this issue. But what the interveners are saying is, is correct. They're, the fact is, is that limitation periods uh, across this country as they apply to Aboriginal claims are a patchwork and an absolute mess. And they're an absolute mess because the federal government has failed to do what they did in the United States, which was create a uh, federal Native Claims Limitations Act. They dealt with that. And interestingly enough, if you rule in our favor here today, uh, this would operate the same as how their Federal Limitations Act operated. What had happened is, is in the 60s, they enacted that act, and it said that all causes of action that happened before it's enacted, they have six years to file, and uh, anything that happens after is two. So, the, and the states dealt with this. Uh, New Zealand somewhat, because they came up with the, the Watangi Treaty Act in 1975. Um, our courts have not, um, and our parliament, sorry, uh, has not. They, none of them have, in the efforts of federalism, uh, dealt with this as a global issue, and it creates this patchwork framework across the country that really is unjust. And the Could I ask you about the constitutional issue that was yeah. raised at trial? Because you're, you're, you're suggesting that you did raise, and as I understand it, the, the arguments that were raised at trial referred to a paragraph 20 of the federal court's decision. One was framed... Uh, as being that no limitation period can run because a cause of action for breach of treaty uh, didn't exist until 1982, and that was rejected by Justice Zinn as being a constitutional issue, saying you didn't need to have. And then the other issue was that it was unconstitutional to incorporate provincial law into federal law using Section 38 of the Federal Court Act. As I read the record and the decisions, you did not argue what some of the interveners are urging, which is that um, uh, treaty claims are inherently not subject to limitation periods. Uh, so that's a very different 
uh, argument, it seems to me, than what was argued. We, uh, so I just want to be clear on what was argued. Right, we argued, we argued what we referred to as a creation of a Manitoba Métis exception, which essentially we argued that it would require a, uh, um, a, a different consideration in, in the vein of a Sparrow justification test, which I think is actually what the interveners are arguing. I believe that's what we put before Justice Zinn. Um, we, do, we did file a notice of constitutional question. Um, I, I think it's available in the, uh, the documents provided, but if not, I can have that provided to you. Uh, it will set out what we argued and uh, make it clear, if that answers the question. Yes. So uh, in my submission, uh, the ruling in Agawa, the comments in Sanders, the comments from uh, great Professor Green, uh, as well as from Michael Coyle, all of which say that uh, treaty obligations were only enforceable at the whim of statute uh, prior uh, to 1982, they're correct. There had to be a legal vehicle, and there wasn't one. And the Crown prerogative to carry out treaty obligations, particularly this treaty obligation, uh, wasn't degraded by legislation or anything until Section 35.1 came to be. And that's this issue. It's not like a surrender. Section 18 is this court hung their hat on that. Uh, we don't have the benefit, unfortunately, um, in, in looking at Ross River and other jurisprudence of anything. Uh, that uh, dealt with reserve creation, that removed it. And it's unfortunate, and that is why uh, we argued the cases we did. I also, I see I'm running out of time. Uh, I also put to you that pursuant to the case of uh, uh, Watkins and Olvison, and in Justice Rowe's recent consideration of that case in Nevson, the, the doctrine of incrementalism, as he's labeled it, and I think is a correct label, in considering the doctrine of incrementalism at paragraphs um, 17 to 19 of that case, which is at page 147 to 148 of our condensed book, I submit to you that applying the doctrine of incrementalism uh, to a situation prior to 1982 or uh, but for Section 35.1 coming to exist, this court would not have recognized a cause of action for breach of the TLE. It's just, it was too much uh, of a major responsibility of law reform in order to do that. And that law reform came in the, uh, so, or sorry, came in the, the way of Section 35.1 with all of the uh, consultations, committees, and uh, drafting, et cetera, of that right. And uh, as to stake from uh, Mr. Nicholas, who gave evidence at that committee, that's the one quote we could find that was in uh, Professor Dodek's book. You know, the problem that he was saying was having is that treaty rights were being infringed without any form of compensation. And that goes to what at least the First Nations, I understand this court doesn't accept originalism and I understand the transcripts have marginal uh, weight, but uh, it, it gives you an understanding of where the First Nations were coming from when Section 35.1 was being debated and drafted. And that is what we're trying to deal with here. Um, with respect to my friend's uh, submission that Section uh, 15 of the Charter has no bearing, with great respect, this Court has already stated that uh, the Section 35.1 falls under the purview of minority rights. And this Court, in the decision of Corbier, uh, uh, stated that ancestral and reserve lands go directly to the cultural identity 
of Indigenous peoples under Section 15 of the Charter. So I would submit what's good for Section 35 is good for Section 15. What's good for Section 15 is good for Section 35. And like in Ravendall, you should find limitation periods don't begin to run until Section 35.1 comes into be insofar as it's a treaty right that wasn't enforceable at statute. And this is such a right. And I ask the court to find that specifically. Lastly, um, I see I'm, um, if I may have this last point, um, I would like to mention that uh, the limitation period that my friends rely upon uh, from the Crown is the basket clause in Section 5.1G of the Limitations Act. I pointed this out in the um, intervener reply brief. The, the thing is, is the Crown also concedes at paragraph 64 of their brief that a breach of treaty does not fit into any of the categories in Section 5.1. If this court even finds that treaties were actionable prior to Section 35.1, it's questionable whether or not 5G even applies, because if you apply the limited class rule to that provision, which courts in Alberta have done, and I provided you the TURDA provision, if it doesn't come within the class uh, of or a kind of those enumerated before it, that basket clause wouldn't catch a breach of treaty. And I submit to you that in 1970, uh, the reason there's nothing of that kind is because nothing of the kind of cause of action and breach of treaty existed. But even if there did, the basket clause, um, given the, the number, the different items that precede it, uh, I submit to you that the basket clause shouldn't be interpreted as having caught a breach of treaty in any event. Uh, I think the comments from both levels of court and Restool would support that as well. Thank you very much. So those are my submissions, and, and thank you. Thank you. Kate Gunn. Good morning. The Treaty First Nations of Alberta intervene on this appeal to provide submissions on the interpretation and application of limitations legislation when raised in the context of historic treaty breaches. The Treaty Eight First Nations submit that the Crown's treaty promises must always be fulfilled and that limitations legislation should not ever be used as basis to prevent the fulfillment of those obligations. When raised in the context of historic treaty breaches, the Treaty 8 First Nations provide the following three points regarding the correct principles and considerations um, for this court to apply. Firstly, court should adopt a contextual approach to the interpretation and application of treaty of limitations legislation in treaty claims. Treaty claims relate to the sacred promises made by the Crown to its First Nation treaty partners. They're based on breaches which have arise in the context of colonization, including Crown actions and policies which have historically expressly or impl implicitly prevented First Nations from exercising their laws and dispossessed them from their lands, cultures, and communities. Claims of this nature are distinct from private disputes between individual litigants. Considering this context is critical if reconciliation is to be achieved. In the absence of this contextual approach, historic wrongs are left unaddressed without the issue being addressed on the merits. As such, on this appeal, Treaty 8 First Nations submit that when the Crown raises um, the issue of limitations in a treaty claim, courts should be directed to consider the significance and the unique nature of the Crown treaty promises. The fact that the Crown remains obligated to act honorably and to fulfill those promises and the ongoing pervasive impacts of Crown policies and actions, which have functioned to prevent First Nations from initiating legal action 
or otherwise enforcing the Crown's treaty obligations. Secondly, limitations legislation must not frustrate the fulfillment of the Crown's treaty promises. Treaties are sacred, constitutionally protected agreements. Mutual promises that they contain are to be honoured and upheld as long as the sun rises and the river flows. The Crown should not be allowed to sidestep its obligations based on a strict or technical application of limitations legislation. As such, where the Crown seeks to rely on limitations as a defence in treaty claims, court should apply principles of statutory and treaty interpretation, which provide that doubtful or ambiguous expressions be resolved in favour of First Nations, and that limitations on the rights of First Nations be narrowly construed. In all, all cases, courts should interpret and apply limitations legislation in a manner that upholds the sacred and enduring nature of the Crown's treaty promises. Lastly, limitations legislation should not be interpreted or applied in a manner that leaves treaty rights unenforceable. The objective of reconciliation requires First Nations to have access to effective remedies to address historic treaty breaches. In the context of treaty claims, declaratory relief cannot provide an uh, adequate substitute for an effective enforceable remedy. In addition, in the context of Canada's colonial history, it should not be assumed that the Crown will rectify its past wrongs if First Nations have no ability to obtain a coercive remedy from the court. Courts are the guardians of the Constitution and are charged with protecting its substance and upholding its promises. In this context, courts are called upon to play an active role in reconciliation and treaty implementation. And as part of this, this requires that limitations legislation not be applied in a manner that renders treaty rights unenforceable, including by recognizing that declaratory relief cannot in all cases substitute for an effective coercive remedy to address historic treaty breaches. In closing, the Treaty 8 First Nations submit that this court should affirm that when limitation legislation is raised as a defense for treaty claims, the courts should consider the impacts of colonization and the enduring nature of the Crown's treaty promises and should adopt an approach which facilitates reconciliation and honorable treaty implementation and which does not in any case preclude First Nations from seeking enforceable remedies to address historic breaches of the Crown's treaty obligations. Thank you. Thank you very much. Adlen Epp. Uh, Chief Justice, uh, Justices, uh, I represent uh, Lac La Ronge uh, First Nation. They're an adherent to Treaty Number Six, and as all adherents to treaties, uh, they're entitled to a diligent and purpose fulfillment of the solemn promises made therein. Uh, there's two specific issues we'd like to address today with the court. Uh, the first being the Court of Appeals decision below and Canada's reliance on the specific claims tribunal as an alternative remedy. Uh, the second point I'd like to talk about is the requirement that whenever there is an infringement of a treaty right, that that uh, infringement should be justified as set out in Sparrow. Uh, with respect to the first point, uh, the Federal Court of Appeal uh, in its conclusion through and at the very end at paragraph 235, that despite the fact the Blood Tribe's claim was barred by provincial legislation, that they still had an effective means of giving effect to honor the Crown and advancing the goal of reconciliation. 
and, and by citing the specific claims tribunal act. Uh, Canada also uh, in their factum relies on the specific claims tribunal act in two ways. You know, first in suggesting that it is a means of an effective alternative for giving effect to honor the crown and advancing the goal of reconciliation. And secondly, Canada also suggests in its factum that uh, having the ability to pursue the claim in the tribunal, uh, there's no need for the court here to exercise discretion and grant a declaration. As we point out in our factum, uh, it would be an error to for the court to assume that the specific claims tribunal uh, provides an effective alternative remedy without actually conducting any analysis as to what remedy the tribunal could provide. As we set out in our factum, uh, the tribunal can only award monetary compensation. It can't award things such as punitive damages, exemplary damages. And importantly, in this case, I would suspect uh, it has a monetary cap of $150 million, a cap placed there by Canada. So as discussed earlier with the appellant, I would suggest in Blood Tribe's case, uh, they're well over that cap and thus there's no effective remedy for them there. Now, considering this overall, the issue of specific claims tribunal as a remedy was considered in Watson versus Canada, where the federal court did reason that the tribunal did not provide an alternative remedy because it could only issue monetary compensation. Uh, as Watson suggested, there must be a principled assessment of the adequacy of the alternative remedy. Uh, I would suggest that whenever there is a situation where there's a breach of a constitutional right, such as here, Section 35, uh, the court should be conducting an analysis to see whether or not uh, there is an adequate remedy available. Now, with respect to my second point, in this case, we involve limitations legislation, which seems to directly infringe upon uh, a treaty right. Uh, as set out in R versus Sparrow, uh, anytime there's an infringement and by legislation, including uh, that legislation must have a valid objective and that the objective must be in a manner that's done to uphold honor of the crown. Uh, R versus Badger also talked about anytime there is an infringement that erodes an important aspect of a right, uh, that there should be an analysis to see if uh, it was justified. I would suggest in this case, and in any treaty case, there should be a factual uh, undertaking, you know, along the lines of Marshall to see was there a right with respect to enforceability. I would suggest that in most cases, yes, uh, whether an oral term or implied, uh, the treaties were thought to be enforceable. And thus, I would suggest in any case where you're gonna infringe upon that right, a right to enforcement of a solemn obligation, uh, analysis needs to be done along the lines that was done in Sparrow to see whether the objective was correct and see whether or not that abides with the honor of the crown. Uh, as we conclude my factum, Lacroix submits that whenever there is a substantive limitation on a constitutional treaty right, there must be a justification. Uh, this concludes looking at the proportionality of that limitation. Uh, for instance, uh, was there a rational connection? Uh, was there a minimal impairment? And was impact proportional to what was achieved? And thank you. Those are submissions of Lacroix. Thank you very much. Isabelle Boisvert-Chastenay. 
Oui, bonjour, Monsieur le juge en chef, Mesdames, Messieurs les juges, les Inuits de Wachat Makmanitenam revendiquent sur l'Ornitasinan des droits ancestraux ainsi que des droits issus de traités qui, sont, qui ont été conclus entre eux et les Européens. Ces traités sont antérieurs à la proclamation royale de 1763 et datent même du régime français. Les Inuits de Wachat Makmanitenam interviennent dans le présent litige pour faire valoir que la prescription ne s'applique tout simplement pas aux litiges et réclamations des Autochtones basées sur des violations à des droits ancestraux ou issus de traités, et ce tant avant qu'après l'adoption la, de l'article 35 de la loi constitutionnelle de 1982. Les droits ancestraux et les droits issus de traités font partie d'une catégorie très particulière et distincte des autres droits ou réclamations autochtones. Ce sont des droits sui generis et ce sont les seuls qui ont été constitutionnalisés. Une composante indissociable de ces droits est de par leur nature intrinsèque, être considérés en termes de siècles et non en termes de décennies. Les droits ancestraux et les droits issus de traités sont des catégories qui comportent des similitudes importantes. Ainsi, l'application possible de la prescription à un litige portant sur les droits, en, les droits issus de traités aura nécessairement des, des impacts sur les litiges similaires basés sur des droits ancestraux. Maître, Quand vous, autre... maître dans, oui. dans votre mémoire, vous dites que vous contestez l'autorité de Wewakum et Lehman. Oui, exact. Donc, on n'a pas à suivre ceci. Et vous dites, entre autres choses, que Lehman ne traite qu'un manquement allégué à une obligation fiduciaire relative à l'administration des biens. Alors, moi, j'ai Lehman sous les yeux. Et... La Cour dit, entre autres, que le, la demande en justice visait aussi des obligations énoncées dans un traité, dans le traité en n'octroyant pas à la bande la totalité des terres auxquelles le traité lui donnait droit et en ne lui procurant pas du matériel agricole et une aide alimentaire en période de famine, de sorte que ce sont des obligations Contrairement, je peux me tromper, vous allez me corriger, mais contrairement à vous dites, c'est pas, c'est pile dessus là. Comme, comment est-ce oui, qu'on peut, peut Nos prétentions, c'est que dans Wewekum, au paragraphe 121, la Cour, vraiment dans un obitaire, euh, parle de la prescription dans le cas d'une obligation fiduciaire basée sur l'administration des biens. C'est ce paragraphe d'obitaire 121 qui a été repris dans Wewekum, euh, dans les mêmes, pardon, euh, dans ce que vous citez. Puis Lehman l'a élargi dans un certain sens à toute réclamation autochtone sans définir c'est quoi une réclamation autochtone. Et c'est ça qui a été repris également dans Manitoba Métis Federation par la suite. D'ailleurs, nous, on est d'accord avec la dissidence de la Cour suprême dans Manitoba Métis Federation qui a, selon nous, adéquatement conclu que les juges majoritaires ont rompu avec Wewekum et Lehman au profit d'une approche où la réconciliation doit être tenue pour prioritaire. Donc, donc, donc votre point, ce n'est pas que Lehman ne traitait pas un, un traité, si vous me passez l'expression, mais que vous pensez que Lehman euh, euh, a été décidé de façon erronée. Exact. Nous, Wewekum se basait sur vraiment une obligation fiduciaire basée sur l'administration des biens, ce qui a été repris et élargi dans Lehman. Puis c'est vraiment ce paragraphe d'obitaire qui a été repris par la jurisprudence subséquente, mais comme je disais, on est d'accord avec la, la, la distance de la Cour suprême dans Manitoba Métis, à l'effet qu'il y a eu une rupture avec, avec cette décision. On se base également sur les principes uniques qui doivent prévaloir en droit autochtone qui ont été mis de l'avant dans Manitoba Métis, 
pour dire que la prescription ne s'applique pas euh, aux réclamations des Autochtones basées sur les violations aux droits ancestraux et sous-traités. Les principes uniques qui doivent prévaloir incluent notamment, selon nous, l'honneur de la Couronne, la réconciliation, l'accès à la justice et, et la déclaration des Nations unies sur les droits des peuples autochtones. Donc, les Inuits d'Ouachat, Makmani et Tenam soutiennent que cette évolution jurisprudentielle-là amène euh, la Cour à pouvoir confirmer l'inapplicabilité de la prescription au recours des Autochtones basés sur des violations aux droits ancestraux et issus de traités. Maître, est-ce que c'est votre position? Est-ce que j'ai bien compris que vous êtes d'avis que les droits et recours pour euh, euh, exécuter les traités euh, existaient bien, bel et bien avant 1982? Oui, exact. Euh, c'est sûr qu'il y avait plusieurs difficultés, tant juridiques, techniques, financières, qui pouvaient empêcher les Premières Nations d'intenter un recours. Mais selon nous, c'est là où on diffère de l'appelant. On pense que les recours étaient possibles, quoique euh, très difficiles, voire impossibles pour certaines communautés autochtones. Alors, vous avez une position différente de celle de l'appelant à cet égard-là. Oui, exact. Merci. Chinage comme maintenant. Euh, Diane Corbière. Chief Justice, Justices, Ani Bojo, Wajgesh Nadokwed Dishnakazin, Makwado Dem, Chiging Donjaba. In English, my name is Diane Corbier and I'm Bear Clan from Chiging First Nation. In our factum, we make two points. The first point is that treaties have always been enforceable. Treaties are instruments of intersocietal law drawing on both Indigenous law and the common law. Canadian courts were always capable of enforcing treaties, but for many years, the continuing force of Indigenous laws and the intersocietal nature of treaties was not fully embraced. As a matter of fact and legal realities, it may have been difficult for treaty rights to be enforced, but we urge this court not to base your decision on any conception of treaties that suggests the intersocietal law and the Indigenous laws which underpin them are not worthy of respect or not capable of giving rise to enforceable rights. The second is that a more critical framework is needed for considering the application of limitation periods to treaty claims. Central to both points is the sui generis nature of treaties, which emerges from the fact that Indigenous law was an equal part of the intersocietal legal framework at the time treaties were made. As such, Indigenous law and common law must be treated as equally worthy of respect and consideration in defining and enforcing the terms of treaties. The principle is based not on the, not on the, or sorry, based on the nature of treaties themselves and not upon the enactment of Section 35.1. This court has repeatedly affirmed the sui generis nature of treaties as relationships based on the mutual respect and recognition of each party's autonomy intended to create mutually binding obligations which serve to reconcile pre-existing Indigenous sovereignty with assumed Crown sovereignty. The sui generis nature of treaties as reconciliatory relationships flows from their historical and legal context and the common intention of the treaty parties. The principle of giving equal weight to the Indigenous perspective in determining the common intention of the treaty parties was clearly affirmed by this court in Marshall. For over a century, failing to consider the Indigenous perspective had resulted in a jurisprudence that viewed treaties as unenforceable political obligations at worst or common law contracts at best. We know today 
just as the representatives of the crown knew when the treaties were made that indigenous peoples have laws that apply to their understanding of treaties. Just as indigenous laws are equally part of the legal landscape when entering into treaty relationships, it stands that they remain equally important to issues that are determinative of the substantive protection and enforcement of treaty relationships. The law that defines the treaty relationship must also define the character and consequences of the party's actions. That law cannot be unilaterally altered by one party, especially in a completely self-interested way, without fundamentally altering the nature of the treaty relationship. Unilaterally depriving Indigenous peoples access to judicial remedies for historic breaches of treaties fundamentally alters the substantive nature of the treaty relation. There is no honour in allowing governments to break treaty promises and then hide behind their own laws and policy by granting themselves the substantive entitlement to avoid or mitigate the consequences. It ignores the Indigenous per perspective and suggests that treaty rights exist only at the sufferance of the Crown's laws and perspectives. One of the consequences of focusing on the common law perspective is that an entire branch of treaty jurisprudence dealing with sui generis remedies for treaty breaches was left undeveloped. The nascent jurisprudence is only beginning to take shape and the imperative of reconciliation requires that this growth be carefully safeguarded to ensure it continues to flourish. If blunt barriers such as unilateral imposition of statutory limitation periods are found to apply, this jurisprudence could die on the vine. It bears remembering that the Crown pledges its honour upon entering into treaty relationship and they are tasked with diligently implementing treaty promises. And yet the clear pattern which emerges uh, from history is that when governments break treaty promises, it is the Indigenous treaty partners who are directly harmed. The bottom line is that the court must equally consider Indigenous laws and perspectives in defining and enforcing treaty relationships. Thank you. Thank you very much. Carly Fox. Good morning. On behalf of the Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs, we respectfully ask that this court consider the application of statutes of limitation to treaty-based claims in light of the nation-to-nation -nation relationship entered into by First Nations and the Crown. In many situations, the Crown has violated its obligations under treaty and utilized colonial laws to shield itself from accountability before Canadian courts for these breaches. The inability to enforce treaty rights is contrary to the constitutional imperative of reconciliation and exacerbates the harm suffered by First Nations due to the Crown's failure to honour its treaty promises. Long before the arrival of Europeans, First Nations thrived on these lands as sovereign nations, governed by their distinctive laws and inherent rights bestowed upon them by the Creator. Sovereign First Nations entered sacred treaties with the Crown on a nation-to-nation -nation basis to establish a lasting, mutually beneficial relationship with obligations to last as long as the sun shines, the grass grows, and the rivers flow. This Court has recognized that First Nations and what is now Canada have never been conquered. By entering treaty, First Nations never agreed to relinquish their laws and jurisdiction in favour of the Crown. As stated by Professor Alan Hanna, First Nations did not consent to shift the treaty relationship from one of autonomous partners to one of paternalistic subjugation. 
Post-treaty, the Crown imposed its colonial legal system on its treaty partners, suppressing First Nations laws and jurisdiction, violating solemn and sacred treaty promises, and enacting laws and policies aimed at assimilating First Nations. While the Crown has benefited from the treaty relationship, its dishonorable conduct has resulted in land dispossession, legal marginalization, intergenerational trauma, attempted assimilation, and economic disparity among its treaty partners. The Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs asked this court to hold the Crown accountable for more than a century of dishonorable conduct and repeated treaty violations. This court has acknowledged the unique nature of treaties as sacred and solemn agreements. This acknowledgement must extend beyond rhetoric to afford treaties their fundamental and continuing status. While limitation periods may serve valid policy rationales, this court in Manitoba Métis Federation acknowledged that unique rationales must sometimes prevail in the Aboriginal context. The Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs submits that repairing and reinvigorating the nation-to-nation -nation relationship between the Crown and First Nations, as affirmed by the treaties, is one such rationale. As long as Canadian courts permit the Crown to shield itself from liability for violations of treaty based on passage of time, reconciliation will remain unfulfilled. Compelling the Crown to meaningfully resolve treaty-based claims will reinvigorate the treaty relationship. Courts can enhance negotiations and establish enforceable mechanisms for compensation that guide negotiated outcomes on more equitable terms. Other processes, including the specific claims process, may fall short due to limitations created by the Crown. The Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs asked this court to recognize the evolving societal and legal landscape calling for meaningful reconciliation. The Crown's use of limitation periods and treaty claims is inconsistent with Canada's commitments and societal demand for reconciliation. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission called for the amendment of statutes of limitation to eliminate the availability of this defense and Indigenous peoples' actions against the Crown for historical abuses. The National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls identified colonial violence against Indigenous peoples as genocide. Canada, having endorsed the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples without qualification and enacting the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples Act, has committed to take all measures necessary to ensure that the laws of Canada are consistent with UNDRIP. Advancing reconciliation requires rectifying the existing imbalance in the treaty relationship. Failure to do so risks providing inadequate remedies for Crown violations of treaty promises and affords undue discretion to the Crown in fulfilling its treaty obligations. Thank you. Thank you very much. David Robbins. Chief Justice, Justices, the couch and interveners are each representative plaintiffs in a site-specific Aboriginal title case currently at trial in BC Supreme Court. Today is day 497 at trial, with closing arguments continuing this month. They have sought declarations relating to unauthorized and unjustified Crown infringement of Cowichan Aboriginal title due to the historic Crown sale of their national village site absent any treaty. And the defendant British Columbia has raised limitation defenses and relies upon the decision under appeal in this hearing. So the Cowichan 
bring an Aboriginal title as opposed to treaty rights perspective on this appeal, and they humbly ask this court in making its decision to be cognizant of three brief points. The first is that any conclusion in this appeal about whether a treaty right was enforceable prior to 1982 has no bearing on whether Aboriginal title was enforceable. This is due to the distinctions between treaty rights and Aboriginal title in terms of their origin and structure, their treatment by the courts, and the jurisdictional setting in which a case arises. These differences have implications for when a right became legally enforceable. And for example, prior to this court's 1997 decision in Delgamook, there was no legal recognition that unextinguished Aboriginal title existed generally at law in British Columbia. Thus, Aboriginal people situated there generally did not have a right to bring an action for a declaration of unauthorized or unjustified crown infringement of their title until at least the date of that judgment. The couch respectfully asked this court to take care in this appeal to avoid general statements that may unintentionally impact the running of any limitation periods in the Aboriginal title context. The second point is with respect to this court's uh, consideration of declaratory relief. The Cowichan respectfully asks this court to take care in this appeal, not to foreclose the application of Manitoba Métis to cases concerning the honour of the Crown and other historical constitutional provisions to Aboriginal, relating to Aboriginal peoples. In Manitoba Métis, this court provided principled guidance for when limitation statutes will not bar the courts from exercising their discretion to grant declaratory relief in Aboriginal claims. It did so without closing the categories of Aboriginal claims to which this exception applies. A narrow interpretation that declaratory relief is only available in the unique circumstances of Manitoba Métis is not in line with the court's reasoning in that case, which was grounded in the honor of the Crown being at stake <clears throat> since the time of Crown sovereignty, its ultimate purpose having always been reconciliation and the principle of constitutionality. The couch and say these matters are not are at stake not only in the implementation of Section 35, but also historical constitutional provisions relating to Aboriginal peoples dating back to 1871, as in the British Columbia Terms of Union, which is at issue in the couch and case. Thirdly, the lower courts here considered limitation periods to be constitutionally sound because they do not extinguish rights, but merely bar remedies based on those rights. And respectfully, the Cowichan asked this court to have regard that this is wrong in law generally and wrong as applied to Aboriginal title claims. They say this court's decisions in Tolleson, Markovich and Castillo are clear that limitation periods are substantive, not merely prejudicial. But regardless, in the specific context of an action based on unauthorized or unjustified crown infringement of existing Aboriginal title, to bar a remedy can have a substantive effect. Courts in Ontario and British Columbia have found that as the right of possession is fundamental to the bundle of rights that make up Aboriginal title, if there is no right to regain exclusive possession, then the underlying Aboriginal title is effectively extinguished. A province cannot extinguish Aboriginal title 
through the passage of time and the application of a limitation act barring remedies. This has always been contrary to our constitutional division of powers. And lastly, those are my three points, but in answer to a question about Waywickham, we say Waywickham did not apply to a, limit, a limitation period to an Aboriginal rights claim. This is clear from paragraphs 10 and 12 of the judgment, indicating the case did not involve Aboriginal rights or title, but rather the administration of reserve interests created after the Aboriginal plaintiffs began moving into the disputed area in 1875, Thank which you. is well after Crown sovereignty in 1846. Thank you very much. And those are our submissions. Ron Morris. Uh, good morning, Chief Justice. Justices, uh, I appear on behalf of the Federation of Saskatchewan Indian Nations, uh, otherwise known as the FSIN, and I'm joined today by Genevieve uh, Boulay. Uh, the, the FSIN represents 74 First Nations across six treaty areas in what is now known as Saskatchewan, uh, namely treaties 2, 4, 5, 6, 8, and 10. FSIN advocates for the negotiation and litigation of claims related to the interpretation and fulfillment of treaty rights uh, on behalf of its member nations. Uh, this appeal is about whether provincial limitation statutes can bar First Nations from enforcing their treaty rights within the Canadian legal system. Uh, in particular, this uh, honorable court is being asked to determine whether provincial limitation statutes, which were incorporated by reference into a general federal statute, uh, many years before the entrenchment of Aboriginal and treaty rights into the constitution in 1982, can operate to bar First Nations from enforcing uh, their treaty rights uh, or seeking remedies for their breach. Um, this obviously will have uh, profound implications um, for the constitutional rights of all First Nations um, and, and maybe uh, perhaps the, one of the most important cases this court will hear in some time. Uh, it's been more than 40 years since Section 35.1 uh, entrenched constitutional or Aboriginal and treaty rights in our constitution, but yet there's still more than 1,000 unresolved uh, specific claims and legal actions that have been asserted by First Nations involving allegations of breaches of treaty. Um, now, oh, of course, I'm going to turn to paragraph seven of, of my brief, but um, while it's been acknowledged that everyone would generally prefer negotiation over litigation, it's of utmost importance for First Nations to have recourse to the courts when the Crown declines to negotiate or discussions reach an impasse. Without recourse to the courts, um, the Crown could effectively ignore Aboriginal and treaty rights with impunity. So there's a Latin maximum that basically stands for the principle that where there is a right, there is a remedy. So uh, it's illogical to say on the one hand that treaty rights are protected by the constitution, entrenched in that constitution as the supreme law of our, of our land, but yet they have no recourse to the courts to seek a remedy for breach or non-fulfillment of a treaty right to land. Um, it would be cold comfort indeed to First Nations to hear that their rights are protected by the Constitution on the one hand, but they ca cannot seek recourse to the courts or seek damages for a breach of that obligation. Um, so without access to the courts to vindicate and enforce a treaty obligation, and that means sometimes seeking damages or remedies for breach, the constitutional recognition of a right would be meaningless. And that could not have been the intention 
of Section uh, 351. Um, uh, I would note in passing as well that the um, UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples also calls for effective mechanisms for the prevention of and redress for um, claims involving the dispossession of lands, uh, territories, or resources. Also calls for mechanisms for the enforcement of treaties and agreements. And without access to the courts, that would be impossible. Um, in terms of, you know, the um, uh, my um, uh, friend uh, just mentioned, Mr. Robbins, uh, referred to the Tollefson case, and I, I would submit that any semantical distinction between barring an action or a remedy, abrogation, or extinguishing treaty rights is really a distinction without a difference. Uh, the trend in the common law is to clearly recognize that limitation laws are substantive. They're not merely procedural, as some of the older cases might suggest. Um, we submit as well that the, the referential incorporation of a provincial limitation period into a federal limitation statute does not meet the test required to show an intention uh, to extinguish a treaty right or bar a remedy for its breach. Now there are really two conflicting lines of authority that are that are now being um, canvassed before this court. On the one hand you have the Delgamuk and Chilcotin cases which we submit got it right um, and then the other line of cases like Wewakem and Lehman are either not correct in law or can be distinguished um, on their facts. Um, speaking to the, um, the Delgamuk line, um, it, it's very clear in that case um, that uh, the court and this court said that um, treaty rights or rights protected under Section 35.1 can never be extinguished by the referential uh, incorporation of a provincial limitation statute. Thank you. Only Canada has the constitutional authority to extinguish that, those types of rights. Thank you very much. Thank you. Adam Williamson. Good morning, Chief Justice, Justices. My name is Adam Williamson, and it's my pleasure to be speaking with you again today on behalf of the Assembly of First Nations. I will be briefly speaking to the unique nature of treaties and how provincial limitations should not be a basis for precluding the Crown from giving due effect to the solemn promises they represent, and how this is ultimately supported by virtue of Canada's adoption of the United Nations Declaration on the Right of Indigenous Peoples Act on DRIPA. The AFN cannot understate the unique nature of the treaty relationship as between First Nations and the Crown. This court has repeatedly considered this relationship, noting that treaties are sweet, generous agreements representing an exchange of solemn promises between the Crown and First Nations, whose very nature is sacred. They're far more than contracts. These solemn agreements intended to last indefinitely and be honored by the Crown so long as the sun rises and the river flows. In the context of their implementation, the Crown must act with honor and integrity, avoiding even the appearance of sharp dealing. This is necessary as treaties serve to reconcile pre-existing First Nations sovereignty with assumed Crown sovereignty and define the rights guaranteed by Section 35. It is always assumed that the Crown intends to fulfill its treaty promises. Now, the AFN submits that the application of provincial limitation regimes in the context of claims for breach of treaty certainly bears consideration by the court in this matter. For the AFN, this court's comments in Manitoba Métis have direct bearing, particularly in its reflection on the fact that the policy rationales underlying limitation statutes simply do not apply in the Aboriginal context, 
which the AFM, AFN submits is emphasized in the context of claims for breach of treaty. For the AFN, the unique and sacred nature of treaties with First Nations demands that a unique approach be taken with respect to any efforts which have the effect of subverting the Crown's solemn promises, which this court has affirmed one should assume the Crown always intends to fulfill. Now, a true anal analysis that should be considered by this court with respect to the application of these limitation periods is one of justification and reconciliation. The AFN would submit that neither layman nor Wickham should be relied on to subvert such analysis in the context of claims for breach of treaty, despite being relied on by the Crown for such purposes to date. Briefly, Wickham addressed a claim for breach of fiduciary duty by the Crown and the consideration of the application of provincial limitations thereto. It was solely in this context of a claim for equitable relief that the court considered the issue and the off-sided policies associated with the application of limitations legislation. Critically, the First Nations context at issue supported the court's conclusion. With respect to laymen, this court did not directly speak to provincial limitation periods in the context of claims for breach of treaty. Instead, it generalized uh, its application based upon a brief reference to Wikwakium and the that the policies behind limitation periods applied as much to Aboriginal claims as to other claims. This court provided no further analysis as to why provincial limitations legislation was equally applicable in the context of claims for breach of treaty, despite their very unique and solemn nature. The AFN submits that the generalization of the application of provincial limitation periods in the context of equitable claims for those based on breach of treaty, as was done in layman, neglected the controlling question of what is required to maintain the honor of the Crown and to reflect reconciliation between the Crown and Aboriginal peoples with respect to the interests at stake. And also the fact that reconciliation is the fundamental objective of the modern law of Aboriginal and treaty rights. We cannot forget that reconciliation is ultimately the overarching objective and serves as the lens through which judges are to view the law. The courts are the guardians of the constitution and the treaty rights guaranteed thereunder, tasked with advancing the constitutional promise of reconciliation. Layman should therefore not be held up as this court's endorsement of a general rule in relation to the applicability of provincial limitation periods to claims based on breach of treaty. In brief, in terms of Andripa, we would submit that the need for consideration of the application of provincial limitation periods is supported by Canada's adoption. This emphasizes the importance of the international human rights standards as identified within the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. It places a legislative onus on the government of Canada to take all measures to ensure that the laws of Canada are consistent with the UN Declaration, affirming the UN Declaration as a source for the interpretation of Canadian law. The UN Declaration speaks to Indigenous peoples' right to the recognition, observance, and enforcement of treaties, placing its onus on states to provide effective mechanisms for the redress of actions which dispossess them of land, territories, and resources. The AFN submits that federal legislation which undermines these rights, including by way of the incorporation by reference of provincial limitation regimes, are inconsistent with these international standards and Canada's commitments to their implementation domestically. These standards speak to the need for consideration of the application of provincial limitation regimes to claims for breach of treaty, grounded in analysis of justification and reconciliation as reflected on by this court in Manitoba Métis. For these reasons, the AFN submits that the application of provincial limitation regimes to claims for breach of treaty does not accord with reconciliation or this government's commitments as outlined in Andripa and should not act to prohibit the court's intervention in this and other matters based on claims of breach of treaty, absent an analysis predicated on justification and reconciliation. Thank you very Barring much. any questions, those are my submissions. Thank you very much. The court will take its morning break, 15 minutes.
support. That cool. Please be seated. Dana Anderson. Good morning, Chief Justice, Justices of the Court. I have four points that I would like to cover today. Those are first, that Crown Indigenous treaties were enforceable before 1982. The second point is that Section 35 Sub 1 did not create a new cause of action. The third point is that statutory limitation periods do apply to breach of treaty claims, including this one. And the last point I would like to cover will be the remedies that remain available in this case. So starting first with the enforceability of Crown Indigenous treaties, this of course is the main issue that has been raised by the appellants in this case. And the Federal Court of Appeals analysis on this point was very squarely um, situated in this court's jurisprudence and was correct. Um, there are a number of cases, um, all of which have been um, in, put into our factum in, in paragraphs 30. Um, but I just want to highlight a couple of them today. And the first one I want to highlight is the annuities case, the 1895 and 96 province of Ontario and uh, Dominion of Canada case. And there's three important points that come out of that case. The first is that the Crown said that the treaties were legal obligations. And in fact, in that case, they paid, the Crown paid the annuities up front before the matter, matter came to court the court only needing to decide which emanation of the Crown was responsible for those payments. So there was a concession in that case. The Crown saw the treaties as legally enforceable. Uh, the second point arising from that case is that the court said the treaties are legal obligations. The court agreed, both the Supreme Court of Canada and the Privy Council. And third, uh, the Supreme Court of Canada in that case um, Justice Gwynne, albeit in dissent, made his foundational statement about the honour of the Crown compelling fulfilment of treaty promises. And that statement has been taken up by this court on a number of occasions, and we've included those um, excerpts in your condensed book. The Henry case as well, a 1905 case from the Exchequer Court of Canada, um, is an example of a remedy being provided. Except on the annuities case, your friends opposite quote Lord Watson. Uh, did you want to, have, uh, in terms of treaties yes. being nothing more than a personal obligation, could you address that? Then? Certainly. Um, so that paragraph has to be read in its entirety. It can't be read um, in little, uh, in smaller pieces. So the, the point where um, Lord Watson says that it's nothing more than a personal obligation by its governor, you have to go on to say, as representing the old province, that the latter must pay the annuities as and when they become due. So that is actually an acknowledgement that it is a legal obligation to pay those annuities. Uh, and it's an obligation of the old province, this representation having been made by the um, governor on its behalf. And the second part of the um, statement there is just explaining that there isn't a trust 
that on the revenue from the surrendered land. So that was something that was discussed by Justice Gwynne in his dissent. And that is their explanation that no, there is not a trust in that particular case on over those um, surrendered lands um, revenue. So I'll turn then uh, to the Henry case. Um, this was a case where a remedy was provided, a declaration that um, the Indigenous group in that case was entitled to payment of their annuities, the Crown being acknowledged as the debtor in that case. And we will have perhaps a word to say about uh, your colleague, Mr. Miller's point that when he looked at this portion of your factum said, well, none of these are common law cases. This is all whim of statute. You'll perhaps help us with that, please. Certainly. Um, so in that particular case in Henry, there was a reference to Section 79 of the Indian Act at that time. And that section is what gave the group representative standing to bring the action um, in that form as opposed to an individual action. And Section 79 of the Indian Act at that time also said um, that there was representative standing to sue and, quote, to compel the performance of obligations contracted with them. So that is the section of the Act that did allow for a representative action to sue for that, for that particular obligation under the treaty. More generally, the idea that if, say, well, say, what is it, section, I guess it was 87 of the Indian Act at the time, that, that says, um, subject to the terms of any Act of Parliament, that, that the idea that that yes, all laws of general application applicable in the province apply, yep. but it's subject to the whim of parliament. I think that was, the, 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 this is, in other words, this is not a pure common law circumstance. Well, the legislation that's referenced in the jurisprudence really just speaks to a number of, um, sort of the availability of, of the cause. So, there's legislation that speaks to the Petition of Rights Act, right? So there's um, the ability to bring a case. There's the Supreme Court and the Exchequer Court Act, which allows the matter to be heard by the court. So all of the legislation is simply giving the court its jurisdiction to hear the matter. It's not necessarily creating the cause of action itself. The cause of action comes out of the treaty itself. Um, I'll just move back to uh, a brief description of the Drever case from 1935. And in that particular case, the court again enforced a specific provision of this time a numbered treaty. It was Treaty 6, and it was the Medicine Clause Treaty. And there was an order given in that case to return monies that had been wrongfully charged. It was not a trust case. It was a matter of the Crown inappropriately charging things to the band's trust account for the medicine clause, which should properly have been paid by the, the Crown up front. So there was an order that those monies had to be returned. And um, in truth- Which could be seen more as a restitutionary-based remedy in the sense of you're, you've taken monies that you're not entitled to, as opposed to an assertion of a common law contract or 
promise. Well, the origin of, of the right is the treaty itself, though. So without that treaty provision providing for the medicine supplies, the, the restitution order couldn't be granted. But it, it's the difference in law between something that's a juridical reason to retain money versus a, a, a positive cause of action, perhaps. Yes, but um, I think it, this can sort of come back to the Dishotel case where this court talked about the variety of different mechanisms and ways that um, treaty uh, that rights can be enforced. So it can be enforced, for example, in those cases where um, Indigenous peoples put forward a treaty right as a defense to a regulatory charge. So there are a, a variety of ways it can be done, but at its base, it is that treaty obligation that is giving the, that the remedy is required to address. Can I just introduce the idea that uh, I have some trouble with in terms of, of Canada's position? Um, and that is we're talking about Limitations Act and discoverability. And normally in discoverability, the focus is on the material facts, right? And we know here that the material facts are that uh, Mr. Leroy Little Bear finally found out what the, the appropriate numbers were in 1971. Yes. And so we have the factual foundation here. But it seems to me that this is a different kind of a case on a limitation because we're really asking, was there um, a legal claim to be made? The juridical status of an enforcement of a treaty. And what we have here is, you know, you point to, um, you know, uh, your cases, 1905-1935, Dewey, Paulus. They point to other cases and say, we weren't sure at the time. And, and to say there's a Un, un, um, un, un problematic uh, 120 years um, is, is, is quite a, a large statement. When you look at these cases that we're talking about now, can this be distinguished on the basis of a section of the Indian Act? Can this be uh, distinguished on the basis of the vehicle of a trust? Can this be because it's restitutionary? Can this be because this? So what do we do in that case on the limitations? Uh, when it, there's no one clear case where you say, obviously, this was this kind of a case. Well, I think Lehman is that case. Layman is that case where somebody brought a claim for breach of a treaty land entitlement provision, and this court said that the limitation does apply in that circumstance. They applied discoverability in that case, um, as the trial judge uh, did here. So it really is the same, um, the same cause of action. Now, maybe you're asking more about the pre-1982? I'm, I'm talking about the pre-1982 only. I understand yes. the, the, the precedential value of layman, but I'm talking about in that position. Because it strikes me that if in 1980, in response to the statement of claim, the Crown is also taking the position in defence that it, there's no duty there might be a question mark there about the juridical basis. And, and what do we do with an uncertainty? Let's say we come and we say, it's not an undisturbed line for 120 years. There was some uncertainty. It could have been, it could have not been. What do we do with that? 
Well, I should say, first of all, I should clarify that uh, the Crown did not, in its statement of defence, say that there, it, there was no legal duty. It was a dispute on the merits of the claim, that there was no particular duty beyond what, had all, what land had already been provided in this case. So that was the, the basis of the Crown's defence, not a denial of, of the legal right, if you will. It was a denial based on the facts, you mean? That's right, yes. Um, and so, yes, it's true, there is a, a lot of, there, there are a lot of little things that we can pick out of all of the cases going back pre-1982, whether there are trusts, whether there's Section 79 of the Indian Act, but at base, over and over, the court did say that treaties were legal obligations. They always recognized that. Um, St. Catherine's Milling, uh, Annuities, Seabold, Hay River, all of those cases, the court has said before 1982 that treaties were legal, they were intended to be, and they did have legally enforceable terms. So I think that is where you can find the consistency. For myself, it's helped to group the, the cases into sort of three categories. And so I, I see the cases, there's a, the cases where the court says treaties are contracts or agreements. So that would be the, the cases I just referenced, St. Catherine's Milling and annuities and such. Then there's the claims for positive um, enforcement of a treaty term. So there you have the Henry case, you have Drever, you have Powis. And then there's the cases where treaty rights are used as a defense, and there's a multitude of cases there. So you have these three categories, and taken together, they all lead you to the same place, that the honor of the Crown is intended to mean that the Crown will fulfill those legal promises, and that is a legal obligation. I'm hoping that's answered your question, to the best of my abilities, perhaps. So as I, I just referenced Hay River and Powis, and again, both of those cases really do speak to the importance of a treaty. And although there is some suggestion that perhaps treaties weren't recognized as sui generis solemn agreements before 1985 in Simon, in fact, in Powis, the, court, the Federal Court Trial Division in 1980 said that treaties are difficult to define. They are, um, they are special in nature. We've included that excerpt in your condensed book. So you can see that already, well before Section 32 came into effect, the courts were grappling with what, what treaties really are, and they were coming to the conclusion that they were very special, unique agreements. I mean, one, one, when I read the cases, notably the ones to which you refer, I don't think there's what you call a consistency in doctrinal conception or definition. And, and to try to read the cases as being entirely consistent would involve you in an exercise that you know, it, it, it cannot, you cannot reconcile everything they say. But what I'm taking from your submissions, if I understand them correctly, is that while the JCPC and the Supreme Court and the Exchequer Court and the Federal Court may have used various formulations as to the character or the nature of the obligations, 
there is a consistent thread that they are, in fact, legal obligations. That's, that's quite right, yes. Yes, that, I, think, I, I, I think you're understanding exactly our position. Um, and the point on federal legislation, I, th I think we've probably already covered this now, but um, the legislation that was you know, referenced throughout was really just about granting the courts their jurisdiction and granting appellants representative standing. And so that is how we get to a place where treaties were enforced in those cases. So I think with that, I will move to the second issue, which is um, the meaning and effect of Section 35, and that in our position, it did not create a new cause of action. So I think I've, I've already alluded to this, but the treaty rights, they flow from the treaty itself, from the document itself. They, they don't flow from Section 35. And there was a little bit of discussion about this earlier this morning, that before 1982, um, Parliament could extinguish or constrain treaty rights simply with the intention to do so. That's all that was required. Post-1982, Section 35.1 gave constitutional protection to those rights so that going forward, they can only now be infringed uh, when justified by the Sparrow Test. Now, uh, there was some reference earlier to the Agawa decision, and I would just note that that is a post-Section 35 case, but it's pre-Sparrow. So at that point, the court is, is sort of grappling with how do we deal with constitutional protection? And that didn't become necessarily clear until this court's decision in Sparrow. And Sparrow did, of course... I mean, just to be... Sorry to be slow. Just to, to be clear on extinguishment, the extinguishment uh, pre-1982 extinguishment, say by statute, yes. is that surely qualitatively different than what happens when limitations come to bear, where it, there is no, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, there is no extinguishment. There's the remedy is is not available, but the, there is no extinguishment. That is absolutely right, yes. Um, so the cases that have been referenced to suggest that um, limitations would actually be substantive in nature and extinguish the rights, none of those cases, Tollefsen or Castillo or Markovich, none of them dealt with a constitutionally protected right. And that right here, I'll be clear in our position, it, the TLE right in Treaty 7 does remain intact today. It was not extinguished prior to 1982, and it is an existing right today. Um, so all of those cases did not deal with Section 35, <coughs> um, or even, uh, sorry, I should say constitutional um, rights. And I think Markovich highlights quite nicely um, the difference between the, the sort of those cases and this case here. In Markovich, the court said that, um, you know, whether a limitation were to um, bar a remedy or bar the right itself was a distinction without a difference in that case, that for all intents and purposes, in that case, the tax debt had been extinguished. And our position, of course, is that's not what happened here. For all intents and purposes, the right does remain intact and it can be pursued in other venues. 
negotiation or the specific claims tribunal? That's right, yes. And I, I'll, I'll cover those a little bit later, if you, or if you'd like, I could no, do no, that No, no, I don't want to disturb your plan. <laughs> Thank you. Um, okay, so I just wanted to um, speak about Sparrow a little bit. Um, and there was a Saunders article quoted in Sparrow about the effect of tree rights. But when you actually read that article, what it is speaking about is Parliament's intent or Parliament's ability prior to 1982 to extinguish uh, rights just simply with their intention to do so. And so it's not saying that treaties had no legal basis or could not be enforced. What it's saying is that Parliament could override them simply with an intention. So that's what that was about. Yeah, the other thing, of course, is that with, 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 with the highest of regard to my colleague on the left here, who was a great expert in, this, in the civil law, including not merely in Canada, but in Europe and other jurisdictions, uh -oh. Uh -oh. The, <laughs> the methodology, as I understand it, by which one gives effect to the civil code is very much informed by the recognized authors. And the decisions of mere courts are sort of, well, the courts have also spoken, but these, these, these are the great authors. And that is the, that what guides you in terms of the, uh, in giving effect to the civil code. You see, that's the continental system. And the common law system is the reverse. The common law system is based upon the decision of judges and the views of scholars, even noteworthy scholars, it doesn't stand on the same footing. So if you lined up 100 academics on one side and you had a decision of this court on the other side, in my book, it's the decision of this court, not the consensus of 100 scholars. So I just make the point in passing that while uh, Professor Saunders is a very highly regarded uh, scholar, and uh, I mean I take seriously his work. Just because he has a certain view, doesn't mean that it is the law. Yes, of course I, we we agree. Um, and so, Sparrow in this case has already done that interpretive exercise um, with respect to what does Section 35.1 mean. And they interpreted the word existing to mean unextinguished rights, and the words recognized and affirmed to apply the infringement and justification analysis. And recognized and affirmed were considered together as one phrase. So there's no need to parse out the words in this case and try to decide what each means. This court already did the work. Um, and Justice Rowe, I think you alluded to this earlier today. Um, at paragraph 46 of Sparrow, the court said that the words recognized and affirm, they impact upon Parliament's regulatory power. They don't impact upon um, creating a, cause of new, new, a new cause of action or upon the treaty themselves. Um, they just restrict what Parliament can do. So that is really what Section 35 uh, is about, restricting the ability of Parliament to infringe without justification. Okay, 
Um, now, the infringement and justification analysis, um, that has been raised by interveners here for the first time. It was not an issue that was canvassed in the courts below. Um, there is no evidence on whether a justification and infringement analysis is needed with respect to limitations legislation, and we would say, of course, it isn't because, um, as I've explained, our view is that limitations are procedural in nature. They are not substantive and they don't extinguish the rights. What was the nature of the constitutional argument raised at trial then? Because we heard some submissions about that. What was actually advanced? We know um, it didn't get into the Court of Appeal, but at trial. Yes, my understanding of it was that it was a challenge to the ability of, uh, of Section 39 to referentially incorporate provincial um, limitations legislation. And the trial judge said that was fine, and he referenced Wacom, which of course already considered that issue as well, and said that referential incorpor uh, incorporation is, is allowable, it's Parliament's will to do so. Um, the only other point I would make on the justification and infringement point that's raised uh, by some of the interveners is that there was no discussion of that issue at all in Wawakam Lehman or the uh, Manitoba Métis Federation case. So it certainly, uh, it would be a new development in the law to be applying that type of analysis to limitations legislation at this point. Well, it might not be uh, after 1982, in res I mean, a limitation period applying after 1982, it might be a very different kettle of fish than dealing pre-1982. Um, it seems to me that saying that uh, uh, the Sparrow analysis applies retroactively in respect of uh, a claim that is prescribed even before 1982 is different than saying the impact of a limitation period to an Aboriginal or treaty claim after 1982, which now has constitutional protection, is quite a different matter. And maybe that is, I know that issue hasn't been addressed, but it does seem to me to be a different uh, order of, and it would have significant implications, but it's a different order of um, type of analysis that would be applied because the right is now constitutional. Yes, that's right. I think. Um but it, it's something that wasn't considered by the courts below, so we don't really have any analysis. And the idea that it on a future claim, for example, that the limitation would be required to be just um, have that infringement analysis and justification analysis, that's sort of a hypothetical situation that really hasn't been considered by, by any of the parties yet at, at this time. But to be, to be plain, you, you remember earlier we discussed the continuing obligation theory that the AG Saskatchewan and your, your friends, the appellants, said, well, for us there's a breach of the treaty. You would agree that there was a breach of the treaty here? Yes, there was a breach of the treaty land entitlement provision of Treaty 7. Okay, That's right. so, yes. we're, so we're all agreed that this is a breach of treaty case? Yes. Good. Yes, that's and not right. a continuing obligation case Don't in the sense that of Lac de la Ronde and, and the Saskat your Saskatchewan friends' uh, position. That's right. Um, and I think. And, and not only is it a, was it a breach, but it wasn't sort of a technical breach. It was probably fairly characterized as a dishonorable breach. It was dishonorable conduct by the Crown in leading the uh, 
the uh, blood tribe uh, to believe that they had a, an entitlement, uh, uh, their entitlement had been fulfilled when it hadn't been. So yes. it was actually a, a very serious breach and, a, and even a dishonorable breach. That's right. The trial judge characterized it as unconscionable. Yes, it's, it's quite right. No, we have not appealed those findings. We accept those findings uh, so, from the so trial court. Going forward into the next phase of the trial, you'll, you're sitting with that breach, dishonorable to use my colleague's term. That's part of the, so if, if it was to appear in a declaration, for example, you'd be, you, that that wouldn't affect your strategy going forward on the remedy side? No, that would be really the legal footing of negotiations, um, that there, there was a breach of that nature. Um, Section 35 applies, and the honour of the Crown uh, must be remedied. Um, so perhaps then I will turn um, to the limitations issue. I think we've already sort of dipped into it a little bit. Um, there are three decisions from this court already that say limitations do apply in this particular context. Um, Wawakam was a unanimous decision of the court. It was a breach of fiduciary duty case. But the court spoke about the policy behind limitations and said at paragraph 135 that nothing in the circumstances of the case relieved the appellants of the general obligation imposed on all litigants to sue in a timely manner. And in Wawakam, the court noted that both of the bands had knowledge of the relevant facts well in advance of bringing the claim. This is very much like the factual situation here where the appellants had knowledge or could have had knowledge of their claim by 1971, well in advance of the expiration of the, the limitation period. Now, Lehman, again, a unanimous decision of the court. This time, as I said earlier, considering not just breach of fiduciary duty, but also a claim for breach of treaty land entitlement, as well as some other treaty breaches. And again, the court decided that the, um, all of the claims were barred by the limitation period. And again, much like in that claim, um, there the plaintiffs, they were represented by legal counsel, their claim was discoverable in the 1970s, and they were in communication with the Department of Indian and Northern Affairs about their potential claim in advance of filing their legal claim and yet they still missed the limitation period. And this court said that in that case, the limitation applied and um, a remedy was barred. The claim was dismissed. Manitoba Métis Federation came next. Excuse me, just before you leave, Layman, the, the, the small point about the accounting Right? Perhaps you could just, because the paragraph 12, the court said that uh, we all agree with the chamber's judge, the others must be struck except for the claim for an accounting of the proceeds of sale, which is a continuing claim and not caught by the Limitation of Actions Act. 
Do you want to have any, do you have any comment on that and its relevance here, or possible relevance here? Yes, yeah, so I would say it's not relevant. The cause of action for the accounting of proceeds was not barred because there was a statutory exception prior to 1999 when proceeds of uh, sale still remained in the hands of the fiduciary. And it wasn't clear on the record um, from in the summary judgment motions whether or not um, Canada had retained any funds in trust. And so that is why um, the claim couldn't be dismissed on summary judgment and that, that particular claim had to go to trial. And I suppose while we're um, speaking about Lehman, I may as well um, touch briefly on Saskatchewan's argument about uh, the continuing cause of, cause of action. We've already discussed it a little bit, but I just wanted to add um, that in Wawakam, the court said that that type of analysis would defeat the, the purpose of limitations. And in Lehman, the court considered the TLE breach to be a one-time breach, and, and that's how it was treated in uh, disposition of that motion. Uh, the Manitoba Métis Federation case, uh, a seven-to-one majority of the court, again, applying limitations, uh, citing to Lehman, citing to Wawakam. And uh, in that case, the, the declaration was not barred, and I, I'll come back to that point in just a few moments as well. Uh, but the point for now is just to reiterate that there are three decisions from this court in which limitations were applied, including one in this same treaty land entitlement context. Some of the interveners um, have argued to overturn these precedents. That, that is a new issue. It wasn't considered in the courts below. Um, you have our position in our, our reply factum at paragraph 7 to 10 about the propriety of the request and the importance of stare decisis and the proper role of interveners. Um, I don't want to go over that again, but I do think um, it's important to explain why the precedents apply and why they should not be overturned. So first, um, just a few comments about the policy purposes behind limitations. And I know you've, uh, many of you have written on this subject, so you won't be hearing anything new. But limitations are about balancing fairness between potential claimants and potential defendants. The limitation seeks to balance the rights of claimants to bring an action with the rights of defendants to timely claims and the ability to defend themselves. And there's a number of ways that this is accomplished. Now, limitations, um, they promote accuracy and certainty in court decisions because they do encourage plaintiffs to commence their actions in a timely manner. So that can help to protect against the diminishing quality of evidence and the availability of evidence and witnesses as time goes by. And um, those points were all considered in Wawakam. We've included the excerpt in your condensed book. Limitations also provide repose to defendants after a certain amount of time. Um, so that brings certainty that um, once that time has passed, they won't be subject to historical claims. 
And just like any other litigant, this policy does apply to the Crown. Indeterminate liability is not in the public interest. Um, governments require certainty, as does any private party. Funds have to be allocated. Contingent liabilities have to be accounted for. And applying the limitation rationale to the Crown protects society at large from judgments of a financial or a specific performance nature long after events took place and those matters are no longer accounted for. You're, you're sort of making uh, generic arguments about indeterminate liability and yet we're going to be coming to the issue of remedy in a few moments when presumably we are going to be talking about liability, some degree of liability. Yes. And so I'm wondering, and I guess also the, the whole limit, it, it seems a bit abstract to be talking about a limitation period having been missed by uh, what is it, uh, four, four years effectively? I believe it's three. Four years in the context of a claim uh, and deception over the course of a century. So I guess those are two things that struck me as I'm listening to you, because I, I agree limitation periods do have this sort of well-recognized purpose, but you're sort of acknowledging that there's going to be a remedy, or there sh should be a remedy. Of course, um, of course. Um, but the purpose of the limitation in this case um, limits the court's judicial remedies, the judicial remedies that are available, but not remedies outside of the court process, whether through negotiation or through the specific claims tribunal. I know you're going to embark on that, and that, that's quite logical, but I want to come back to a point. Um, you're seeking, you're advancing arguments as to why limitation periods make it, it makes good sense to apply limitation periods. You, earlier, you said, here are authorities, precedents of the court in which this court has applied limitation periods in the context of uh, Aboriginal claims. It seems to me you've jumped over a step, and the step is this. Beyond the fact that this was not an issue in the courts below, there is a very high threshold, there has to be, for this court to depart from its earlier jurisprudence. Otherwise, precedent just flies out the window. And you, you have an instability in the law which is antithetical to the rule of law. And that, I think, is the point that wasn't uh, touched on. It may have been in your written materials. And I refer to, uh, again, my colleague on the left, in, uh, the, I think, the leading decision in, of this court in uh, Sullivan as to when it is that this court will and will not uh, reconsider its precedents. And, um, you know, if there's a conflict in the law, if there's a novel question, if there's a situation where uh, related areas of law have... Uh, developed in a way that undermines the, the, the coherence of the law. I'm not doing justice to the reasons of my colleague, which, are, which is the binding authority and, and quite recent jurisprudence. So I just note that it seems to me logically, the first thing you say is there are precedents of this court. The next logical point, it seems to me, would be, and there is no basis having regard to when the court will depart from its own precedents, and then the next argument is, even if you're thinking about it, you shouldn't do it, and here's the, here's the reasons why. But you kind of skipped over the second one, which, 
which, you know, just as a matter of proper practice of the court, I, I didn't want to leave unnoted. Yes, thank you. And that is noted in our reply factum at paragraph 7 to 10, the importance of stare decisis and that there are no, um, no factors that would lead to overturning the, the precedents in this particular case. Um, so just a few comments on discoverability. I know that's been raised a few times and here the common law discoverability concept really helped balance out the fairness in this case. It did extend the limitation period from six years to 94 years. So any of the unconscionable conduct that happened back in the 1800s could be discovered um, before the time that the limitation period started to run. And in this particular case, the trial judge found that those facts were discoverable by 1971 at the latest, and the, that finding has not been appealed. Um, there has been some discussion this morning about obstacles to filing claims uh, by Indigenous peoples in, in Canada's history. And of course, I have to acknowledge that that is true. There have been obstacles in the past, um, very regrettable ones. But in this particular case, it's not a factor. The court of uh, sorry, the trial judge in this case, he found at paragraphs uh, 30, 435 to 436, and those are in your condensed book, that the appellants in this case did have all of the relevant facts. They were represented by legal counsel. They were aided by government-funded research, and they had already taken steps to assert their claim through the Department of Indian and Northern Affairs prior to the expiration of the limitation period. And there, there is no explanation at all in the record with respect to why the limitation period was passed. The trial judge rejected all, um, all arguments with respect to lulling, and there's, there's no evidence actually before the court about why the limitation was passed. Amendment in 1999. The, the amendments are an interesting thing. I wrote down the paragraph number. Just give me one moment. So the trial judge actually said that the 1999 amendments did not change the nature of the claim at all. It was always a breach of treaty claim. And that was at paragraph 44 of the trial decision. Now this is um, going to start to lead into the discussion of remedies, but I just want to touch briefly on the Manitoba Métis Federation case where this court said reconciliation does have to weigh heavily in the balance. And to that I would say for most litigants, missing a limitation period is a complete bar to their claims. That is not the case here where we have a protected, a constitutionally protected Section 35 right, uh, treaty right, and the Indigenous group here will not be left without a remedy. Um, Indigenous parties generally can still seek remedies through the Specific Claims Tribunal. Um, 
beyond limitation periods. And I, I will get to them a little bit uh, in just a moment. I see I'm starting to run out of time. But the point I want to make here is that there's no conflict between the honour of the Crown, which does compel the fulfilment of the treaty promise, and the application of the limitation period, which bars certain judicial remedies, but it doesn't hinder reconciliation because there are mechanisms that remain available to remedy the breach. But the big problem is that when you have no judicial remedies, you lose entitlements. You lose the right to insist, and you, you, you lose a court order that says that this is your due under a particular treaty. And you're replacing it with the old uh, negotiation or supplicant role of going to the Crown and asking for something or in specific claims. And I'm very interested in, in the specific claims process and, um, and why you think that may be comparable. Uh, my reading of the file is that a specific claim was rejected in 2003. Uh, yes, there's been changes to the tribunal, but it's, there's a cap in the tribunal. That's interesting. But what's more interesting to me is that there is no limitation period in the specific claims tribunal. And um, it, it just seems to me that it's an interesting observation that you insist rigorously in the judicial context on a limitation and want us to take solace in the fact that you're going to a, another body where you recognize that the honor of the crown requires there not to be limitation period. So I've got lots of follow-up questions, but that's my okay. start. Well, why don't we turn to the tribunal then? Um, the tribunal is not a panacea. It's the middle ground that can be taken when the limitation period has been passed. So initially, the appellants had their choice of forum, but they waited too long to file their claim, and as a result, the choice gets limited. And that leaves you with the specific claims tribunal. They do have full jurisdiction in this case under the Act to, to take on this uh, particular claim, just provided that these court proceedings are either concluded or adjourned. Um, so that's really the only condition on the specific claims tribunal um, taking the matter on. And as I've said, you know, once the limitation period expires, ordinary litigants don't have another place to go. But this was created be to ensure that those technical defenses of limitations are not being applied. And there has to be some compromise there. So the compromise is there is a statutory cap. Um, there are limits on the tribunal's jurisdiction, although not in this particular case. So it, it is the middle ground. So why was there no negotiation, though, after the uh, I don't want to trespass on your settlement privilege, but it's been it's in the materials that yes. you know negotiations only started the day before their materials were filed. Can yes. you tell us about that? What can. you can tell us about that? So in the past, the crown has absolutely declined to negotiate this claim on the basis of a genuine disagreement about the merits, and it turned out after the trial that both of the parties were wrong on the merits. The appellants were wrong about the big claim. Canada was wrong about the TLE claim. So we've all benefited from the trial judge's examination of the evidence in that regard and his findings. Neither of us have appealed any of those liability findings. So we move forward with, with those in place for us. And 
And you know from our fact, um, Canada is committed now with those trial judge findings to finding a negotiated solution and otherwise remedying the matter. That's in section, uh, sorry, paragraph 74 of our factum. May I ask this question, and I, I do not know the answer, is in Wawakam and uh, in Lehman, have there been settlements? Have there been a resolution of the Wawakam Indians and the, the Papaches? I, uh, I don't know that, I'm afraid, off the top of my, uh, off the top of my head. Um, certainly the, the tribunal would have been available if a negotiated settlement was not reached. Um, I believe we have some um, of the specific claims tribunal records in our initial book of authorities, and those may speak to those particular files, but I can't recall off the top of my head. I'm sorry. Um, so just a few more words about negotiations. Um, we are aware that Canada's honour is at stake in the negotiations. We do approach them with um, the position that the Section 35 right remains intact. And negotiations, as this court has said in a number of decisions, really are the preferred method for proceeding, particularly in cases of a long-standing breach where there are perhaps third-party interests that have come to uh, uh, come to reality in the as the through the passage of time um, and creative solutions might be required so that is why negotiations would be the preferred method are you telling us in terms of negotiations negotiations are usually done in the shadow of the law <clears throat> and what is an enforceable um, obligation and so do you say that the honor of the crown um, is is broad enough that once there's these findings um, that uh, that's taken as a given and that there's uh, no uh, n no difference between whether there was or wasn't uh, a, a limitation period applied see what I'm getting at there I think so. I think there has to be compromise over time. Um, but the fact is we, we have not come to the stage where there's evidence on the um, amount of sort of the financial um, equivalent of the breach. Um, we don't know, it's not on the record, whether there's any land remaining available. So those are all things that would have to be explored through ne the negotiations. But as I said, they are treated with the honor of the Crown, with the idea that the Section 35 right is intact. In the interest of clarity and, and avoiding a situation where people say, well, that's nice, but, but what got decided? Um, it seems to me there's either an enforceable legal right, the ability to sue, or there ain't. And what your position, as I understand it, is that there is not because of the limitation period. I want to be clear, are you telling us that notwithstanding the operation of the limitation period, there is a right to sue because of the honor of the Crown? I mean, because, because why are we here? if that's the case. If there was a right to sue before the limitation expired, after that, certain judicial remedies become barred. Yeah. 
So I'm, I'm going to say something, since we're in the non-juridical realm of this case, something maybe slightly non-juridical, I'll pose it as a question. You can imagine people hearing that the Crown is now ready to negotiate, being a little skeptical of that after this very long period of refusal to negotiate, refusal to acknowledge anything went wrong, very, very long period, and then three and a half years, time barred, time out, okay, now we're ready to talk. So, so par part of the non-juridical case that is thrust upon us in respect of the declaration that might come out of this. I'm wondering how we can say something sensible that rings true to the reader. Just to follow up with my, my colleague's question, as much as you recognize that or the Crown recognized that there was a breach, why would you need a declaration? Well, our position is you wouldn't necessarily need one in this case. The appellants haven't sought one, although perhaps this morning um, that might have changed. I'm, I'm not entirely clear on that. That doesn't mean a declaration isn't available. Declarations, uh, we've set this out in our reply factum, there's certain criteria to be met, and then it's a matter of the court deciding whether it's an appropriate case in which to exercise discretion. We've given you our position that because there is an alternative mechanism to remedy the honor of the Crown, a, a, um, a declaration in this particular case is not required, and perhaps that militates against the giving of a declaration. But if it were, uh, if the court did want to issue a declaration and were of the view that all the criteria had been met, it was an appropriate case, then the Crown would not object to a declaration a pure declaration stating the rights and the breach. So a declaration to say that you consider the breach, that you are willing to negotiate, or no. something different? Uh, I think it would be a declaration that you know the Crown had, I think it would really track along the lines of the trial judges, the judgment. You mean his finding, uh, his conclusion? That's right, yes. The, the, I think it was the two or three points he had at the end, that there was a breach, this was the amount of uh, land that was not provided. Yes. So the, I think that would be... Well, that's nothing more than what's, what you're already asking for, which is that the appeal be dismissed, which means that judgment with those paragraphs would be affirmed. So I'm not sure that that's something extra. Um, and maybe I'm misunderstanding what it is that you're well, hesitantly to, conceding it may be appropriate. <laughs> yes, to be clear, I'm not advocating for a declaration, but I think there is something in a declaration from this court that, that means something beyond a trial judgment. Um, I do think it has meaning and, and um, is and persuasive. And an admission. Pardon me? And more than an admission. Yes, yes. I, th I think much like the Manitoba Métis Federation case, uh, there the declaration was granted to aid negotiations. I think it could be looked at. And in it a was followed way. by an avalanche of litigation, right? <laughs> well, but That's also, the reality. also very important agreements that have been reached. Um, you know, there has been certainly much progress on that point. So, uh, looking at the trial judgment, 
You're, you're speaking to, just so we can all be precise here, to what paragraphs? Sorry, did you, uh, let me just grab the yeah. trial judgment. Yes, so certainly paragraph one of the judgment. So I'm at paragraph, um, sorry, page 184 of the, the record, if that's helpful. Um, so paragraph one is that under the treaty land entitlement provisions of treaty seven, the blood tribe was entitled to a reserve equal to 710 miles. Number two, that Canada having provided the blood tribe with a reserve of 547.5 square miles is in breach of the treaty land provisions of uh, Treaty 7. So certainly that, I think, could operate as a, a, a pure, declare, uh, pure declaration that states the nature of the breach, the nature of the rights of the parties. So, so one small nuance that came out this morning that's not in here is the dishonorable character of the breach, that it's not just a breach, but that it's a breach in respect of something particularly solemn involving the Crown. Would that, you would not object to seeing, to that seeing its way into a declaration carried forward by this court? I think that would track along the lines of the declaration in the Manitoba Métis Federation case, which said um, in that particular case, it was worded um, a little bit differently than the trial judge's um, formulation. Um, it was more of a positive statement that the, the Crown had failed um, to do something in accordance with the owner of the Crown. So, You'd agree to that. Thanks. Yes. But I'm going to come back again, right, because now I'm completely confused as to the position of the government. I had understood your position up until this point to be that uh, a remedy at law through an action is not open because it is barred by the limitation period. I now hear you saying what seems to me to say, to be, that the court building upon a declaration, that would then be a basis upon which an action could be taken. In which case, as I, I, I repeat my question, why are we here? So um, just to clarify, our position is that the limitation bars what we would call coercive remedies. So remedies in the form of land or money. They don't necessarily bar declarations. Um, the idea is not that a declaration now would result in litigation later. The idea is that a declaration now, if the court sees fit to grant one, would be the base part of the basis for the negotiations. It doesn't necessarily add anything to what is already before the parties, except for this court's um, view of the of the nature of the of the breach. Is it up to us to issue a declaration or to the trial judge? Because uh, it was agreed that uh, the parties would proceed on the liability only, and that phase three is supposed to be about remedy. So. Whose role is it, is it to issue a declaration, if there is a declaration to be issued? It's a fair question. Um, I think because the nature of declaratory relief really is a statement of the right and the breach, that really is a statement of liability. Um, so that could be done now. 
if it were to go back to the trial judge, I don't know what the trial judge would be doing beyond affirming his current judgment and adding the word declare. <laughs> yes. So. With your permission, Chief Justice, there's one strand that, not relating to the declaration, that comes up and that I just want to make sure that we have an opportunity to ask you about it. There seems to be a disagreement between the two sides as to the relevance of the Restool case to this case. And given that Restool is on our minds, I just want to make sure that you have an opportunity to address that. So your colleagues say that a similar issue to the one in this case arose in Ontario in respect of the 1850 treaties involved in the Restool case, and they draw a conclusion from that. And you say you disagree, and so just have yes. the opportunity to explain yourself. It's a different treaty. It's different um, limitations regime. It's a different case. It, it, it's not applicable here. So I see my, my time is out, but right. so I'm trying to keep my comments as quick as possible. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you. Richard Ogden. Good afternoon, Justice Chief Justice, Justices. The Attorney General for Ontario has two submissions. First, the honour of the Crown means that as a matter of common law, treaties were enforceable in court before 1982. Second, Section 35 directly recognises and affirms treaties. It recognises the treaty relationship. A declaration of a breach in the treaty relationship arising from an historical breach of treaty rights will sufficiently advance reconciliation. To the first submission, there was not, before 1982, a cause of action specifically for breach of treaty. Treaties did not have the full sui generis status at law that they have today. Rather, the honour of the Crown made it possible at law for claims for a breach of a treaty right to be brought in court. Breach of treaty could be remedied by an action described as an action upon the case. The remedies that were available for claims for breach of treaty rights before 1982 were those remedies available at common law for an action upon the case. They were personal remedies and were subject to the, to the applicable limitations period. To my second submission, Section 35 recognises treaties as sui generis agreements between the Crown and Indigenous peoples. Section 35 thereby recognises the distinctive legal relationship between the Crown and Indigenous peoples. Section 35 takes the rights as they are, as treaty rights. Now I turn to the question of remedy. The advancement of reconciliation is the central purpose of Section 35. Reconciliation means repair of the relationship so that it is mutually respectful and directed to the long term. And depending on the circumstance, reconciliation can mean restoration of the honour of the Crown. Section 35 has a constitutional provision, and so a remedy under it must further the purpose of Section 35. It should advance reconciliation, restore the honour of the Crown, repair the relationship. And this focus on the relationship directs the remedy to the present and the future. The Attorney General agrees that it is essential to reconciliation 
that there be a just resolution of claims arising from a Crown failure before 1982 to honour treaty obligations. A declaration of a breach in the relationship will lead the parties to work together to repair the damage to the relationship arising from an historical breach of treaty. A declaration under Section 35 is a constitutional declaration, and a court can expect that the Crown will act constitutionally on the advice of the Attorney General. For this reason, a declaration has real substance. It is a, it is a continuing obligation. It informs what the Crown, acting honourably, must then do. It requires the Crown to address damage to the relationship in good faith negotiations. The Crown must engage with the First Nations and work to find a solution. This includes by making meaningful amends for the past. A declaration is also valuable because personal remedies may not be available in the court, might not be available in the court. Limitations legislation may apply. For example, personal remedies for breach of treaty may be directly subject to a limitations basket clause or limitations legislation before 1982 may have operated to preclude a post-1982 claim for historical breach of treaty. That is because before 1982, treaty rights were actionable. And so there was, before 1982, a cognizable legal right upon which a claim for breach of treaty right could be based. On the other hand, limitations legislation does not apply to a constitutional declaration. The Crown must address a declaration that there is a breach in the treaty relationship arising from an historical breach of treaty rights. Would Lastly, the, would, would personal an remedies analogy? such as damages and compensation may take the focus away from the repair of the relationship. They Mr. may Robin. drive the parties into an adversarial relationship which will impair rather than advance reconciliation. Section 35 jurisprudence continues to develop rapidly in parallel with greater societal support for governmental and judicial efforts to advance reconciliation. The Attorney-General is grateful for this Court's continuing guidance as the Crown seeks to repair its relationships with Indigenous people. Mr. Ogden, Mr. Ogden, Justice Jamal has a question for you. Yes, Listening to you, I wonder whether there's an analogy with the duty to consult then, which doesn't guarantee a result, doesn't guarantee a veto, but it does oblige uh, a specific course of conduct, which is that you do need to consult. And so similarly, you're talking about uh, uh, there would be um, an obligation to negotiate and you can't sort of avoid that. So in that sense, it would be the honour of the Crown. You say it, it is a, an obligation of a sort, but it doesn't guarantee a particular result, but merely an obligation to negotiate. Yes, Justice Amal, that's a, a very good analogy. Thank you. Uh, the Crown does look to the vast body of duty, consult, duty to consult jurisprudence to inform how it must act honourably in situations where the duty to consult does not uh, apply. Thank you very much. Thank you. Mish McAdam. Good afternoon, Chief Justice, Justices. I want to make three points today. First, that TLE claims are continuing obligations. And I want to be clear, I'm not suggesting that they are, there's a continuous breach. It's a continuing obligation. 
During the past 30 years, the government of Saskatchewan has participated in the settlement of over 35 TLE claims and has transferred hundreds of thousands of acres of land to First Nations to be set aside as reserves to fulfill those claims. The province has also been involved in litigation about TLE claims and limitation periods have never been raised. Now, maybe they should have, but the reality is that they haven't. So what I'm trying to do today is rationalize the court's decision in this case with our experience in Saskatchewan. But what you're telling us is that as a matter of public policy, the government of Saskatchewan did not seek to avail of a right that it may or may not have had at law. And you're saying uh, that policy should be imposed on other jurisdictions. I, I, that sounds to me just like nonsense. Well, Justice Rowe, I hope it's not nonsense, and let me try to explain why I think it's a legal obligation as opposed to simply a policy choice. And I think maybe the best way to do that is to provide an example. If we assume that a First Nation in 1880 was entitled to 10,000 acres of reserve land, and that First Nation only received 8,000 acres of land, there would be a shortfall of 2,000 acres. My submission is that that's not a breach of the treaty. There could be many reasons for that shortfall. But my point is simply that that obligation to provide the 2,000 acre shortfall continues to exist. And it has to be honored even if it's many years later. So I say that's a, a legal obligation. The legal right continues. It's our submission that a breach of the treaty right will only occur in two situations. First, if the First Nation requests a land and doesn't receive it within a reasonable amount of time. Second, if the First Nation requests the land and the federal government denies the request or says that no land is owing. It's those cases where a breach will occur and that's when a cause of action arises and that's when the limitation clock begins to run. So I'm simply suggesting, my lords or justices, that there's a different way to look at these issues that's consistent with our experience in Saskatchewan. I submit that it's consistent with the jurisprudence and that it provides another path to reconciliation. I have two other quick points that I would like to make. First, some of my friends have suggested that the MMF case stands for the proposition that the policy rationales for limitation periods have no application to treaty rights cases. With respect, I don't think that the MMF case stands for that proposition. I think MMF recognizes that those policy rationales can and do apply in certain cases. They didn't apply in MMF, but they can apply in other cases. To begin with, treaty rights cases can't be decided in, va in factual vacuums. These cases often happened 100 or 150 years ago, the evidence isn't available, and sometimes things aren't really what they first appear to be. So those evidentiary concerns can still exist. The other point that I would make is that while declarations may be appropriate remedies for constitutional breaches, the case law is consistent that personal remedies like damages are not. And I would submit there are good practical reasons for that, Given that the breaches happened long ago, a breach for even a small amount of money can turn into millions today with the effect of compound interest. And second, 
when we talk about the return of land that may have been taken in breach of a treaty obligation, the court is going to be faced with the fact that completely innocent third parties occupy that land and may have occupied it for generations. So my point is simply this, the, the policy rationales do apply in some treaty rights cases. Now, the third point that I would like to make in my very brief time is I'd like to try to answer one of the questions that Justice Martin raised earlier today. And I understood that question to be, what do we make of the fact that the law is uncertain on the running of limitation periods? And what I would point the court to is the decision in the Watson case that's been referred to earlier today, where Justice Phelan said limitation periods run from the discoverability of the material facts, not from when an area of law was favorably clarified by precedent. The appellant said earlier this morning that they launched their case in 1980 based on legal theories that hadn't been proven. I would submit that's exactly what they ought to have done and that the law says they can't wait for somebody else to uh, litigate those issues for them. All right. With that, those are my submissions. Thank you very much. Uh, Neil Dobson. Good afternoon, Chief Justice and Justices. The Attorney General of Alberta intervenes in this matter to address whether a claim for breach of treaty and failing to provide sufficient reserve lands was enforceable before the enactment of Section 35 of the Constitution Act. I intend to focus my submissions on the point, which is that treaty rights were enforceable at common law prior to the enactment of Section 35. One key example uh, of this common law enforceability is evidenced by Section 10 of the NRTA, which was enacted in 1930. Section 10 includes a mechanism for Canada to fulfill its, treaty, its existing obligations to provide reserve land under treaty. If time allows, I'll make some brief comments on laymen. It's well-established law that treaties are characterized by the intention to create mutually binding obligations between the First Nation and Canada. In Arm Badger, this court considered the nature of treaties and held that treaties create enforceable obligations based on the mutual consent of the parties. Uh, treaties contain solemn promises between the Crown and Indigenous groups. Further, treaties are analogous to contracts, albeit of a very special and public nature. Uh, this is further supported by Justice Rennie's decision in the Federal Court of Appeal in this matter, where he held the terms of the treaty clearly bind the Crown. The fact that treaties created binding obligations regarding reserve land is borne out in Section 10 of the NRTA. The historical context of the NRTA was to place the three prairie provinces in an equal position with the other provinces of Confederation, specifically with respect to the ownership of natural resources. Each of the three prairie provinces entered into nearly identical agreements in December of 1929, transferring the ownership of natural resources from Canada to the provinces. In addition to the transfer of natural resources, the NRTA also addressed Canada's existing contractual and related liabilities. Clauses were included for federal obligations like natural par or national, sorry, national Parks, Soldier Settlement Act, and fisheries. Section 10 of the NRTA addressed Canada's obligation to provide reserve land. The purpose of Section 10 was twofold. First, to confirm that all lands and reserves continued to be vested in Canada and remain Canada's responsibility. And secondly, to, pro to provide a mechanism that allowed Canada to request lands from the province in order to fulfill its obligations under the treaty. Section 10 of the NRTA is based upon the premise that there is an existing enforceable obligation for Canada to provide lands under treaty. This interpretation is consistent with Badger. The NRTA did not create any new obligations for Canada. It simply provided 
a mechanism that allowed Canada to meet its existing treaty obligations regarding reserve land. The NRTA did not contemplate any further steps being required to engage Section 10, such as the enactment of Section 35. To suggest that the underlying right to reserve land was not enforceable until Section 35 was enacted more than 50 years after the NRTA was enacted undermines the meaning and the intent of the terms of the treaty, as well as the NRTA. If the underlying right could not have been enforced, then there would have been no viable reason to require Section 10. But the appellants have argued in their response factum to the interveners that Alberta denies the existence of a legal obligation under the NRTA, and the Attorney General of Alberta disagrees with this statement. Alberta has and continues to fulfill its obligations under the NRTA as and when required. For Section 10, Alberta does this on a case-by-case -case basis. Uh, as an example of Alberta's resolution of an NRTA claim, I'd like to refer you to the Good Swimmer in Canada decision, which is at tab nine of uh, Alberta's uh, authorities, uh, paragraph six. In conclusion on this point, Alberta submits that section 10 of the NRTA confirms that Canada had an existing treaty obligation in 1930 to provide reserve lands, and that, that was in, enforceable uh, at common law prior to the enactment of section 35. The jurisprudence also confirms the binding and enforceable nature of the treaty obligation prior to the enactment of Section 35. These pre-existing treaty obligations are the foundation for the requirement in Section 10 of the NRTA. There's no reason for Section 10 uh, to, or for the NRTA to include a mechanism to fulfill a treaty obligation if the underlying obligation by Canada to the First Nation itself was not enforceable at common law. I'd like to turn very quickly to the Lehman decision, if I may. There's a number of, it's been discussed in detail, and I'd just like to address a couple of uh, key points. First, the Lehman decision was indeed a breach of treaty case. Uh, it was clear that part of the breach of treaty uh, dealt with uh, uh, failing to provide lands, failing to provide farming equipment, and food in the time of famine. So it was clearly based uh, on a claim for breach of treaty. The court in that case found that it was discoverable by the 1970s, which is a pre-1982 time period and was barred by limitations. It's Alberta's position that this decision cannot be reconciled with the position that's being advanced that treaty claims were not enforceable prior to 1982. I'd also like to point out that uh, in Lehman, uh, there's a question with respect to the accounting, the Supreme Court of uh, uh, accounting issue. Um, I can advise that the, uh, the accounting issue did not go to trial. There was no money left after the Supreme Court of trial, so, so that issue did not receive further uh, consideration. Subject to any questions you may have, those are my submissions. Thank you very much. Reply. Sir, uh, Chief Justice, Justices, I'll deal briefly first with the statement of claim and statement of defense issue. My uh, friend with the respondent raised. Uh, to understand this, and with the great respect to my friend, what she stated about the statement of defense is not correct. Uh, first, that provision, the statement of defense I was referring to, was in reply to paragraph four of ours. Uh, our statement of defense in 1980 states as follows. By treaty number seven and adhesion thereto, entered into on or about the 27th day of December, A.D. 1877, between the defendant and certain Indian tribes of what is now southern Alberta, the defendant undertook inter alia to establish reserve lands for the benefit of those Indian tribes on the basis of a sufficient area to allow one square mile for each family of five persons or in that portion for larger and smaller families. That, and then it talks about where it was supposed to be. That is all that says. Their reply to that at paragraph four of their statement of claim is this, again, with reference to paragraph four of the statement of claim, 
He says the treaty number seven the Crown undertook to establish for the Blackfeet uh, Blood and Sarsi Band of Indian Reserves consisting of, of the land, the boundaries of which were specifically agreed upon and described therein, so as to implement the general objective agreed upon with those and other Indians being parties to said treaty of assigning the Crown Indian Subject Reserves a sufficient area to allow one square mile for each family of five, or in that proportion for a larger or smaller families, but he denies that under Treaty 7, the Crown owed the Blackfeet Blood and Sarsi bands of Indians a further duty to assign them a reserve on the basis of their numbers at that time. So right there, and then it goes on and says, well, if they're wrong, that uh, they, they fulfilled the duty. And again, even if they didn't, that the 1883 document, which Justice uh, Zinn held, uh, didn't get them anywhere, uh, that it waived. So you have right there at Clause 4 of their Statement of Defense, them stating they actually deny any form of duty arose under the Treaty TLE provision. That is because at the time, in 1980, there was no legally recognized duty to abide by the Treaty. It was solely within the honor of the Crown. And as you note in our brief, the honor of the Crown didn't become really judiciable until after 1982 with the advent of Section 35.1. It's now a constitutional principle that this court can use in adjudicating matters. It was not then. And it isn't in England, I might add. There is no constitutional principle regarding the honor of the crown in Britain. And of course, prior to that time, we followed uh, British law essentially as a legal system similar to that. Dealing with my friend's um, statement with respect to the question was asked about what's the difference in Restool. The only difference uh, we submit is that in Ontario, their limitation regime doesn't have a basket clause. That's, that's what the difference is. They don't have one. And as I've submitted, um, this basket clause, this is the 1970s Act. It no longer applies. It only applied to matters filed up until the mid-1980s, or mid-1980. Um, it's been changed. Our NOW Act bars any remedy uh, as opposed to causes of action. And we submit that if you apply the uh, limited class rule uh, to this, we would get the same result as Restool. Uh, with respect to Henry, I would draw the court's uh, uh, attention to the argument of the Crown there, uh, sp uh, specifically uh, Mr. Newcomb that's in there where he states the treaties essentially meant nothing. And the court seems to agree with him and then asks, what about if it's at statute? And he said the Indian Act was purely administrative, but then he hung his hat on section 79. Angers J. in Drever found there to be an actual trust. Uh, that's what the decision was decided on and I'd ask you to take a look at that. Lehman, uh, it was filed in 2001, so this argument would not have been available at all and it wasn't argued and there was also no evidence in respect to that. With regard to uh, Ogawa, we have to remember that it, that was the first time the Ontario Court of Appeal was ever interpreting section 35.1 and it was the first treaty case really at an appellant court. Sparrow followed Agawa on a number of fronts, and Sparrow also cited the same page from the book of Douglas Sanders that I read to this court earlier that treaties weren't enforceable, page 730. And so in my submission, in citing Agawa and referencing Douglas Sanders, at least the 1990 court of this court was aware of this issue. Uh, and I would submit with respect to uh, my friends talking about reconciliation now um, regarding negotiations, you have to remember that the minister neglected this claim in 1978. Uh, it was then rejected again in 2003. It goes through the ICC process. That panel recommends negotiation. They say no. It then goes through trial, a decision, an appeal, an appeal of that decision, 
uh, with leave of this court and only with leave of this court upon uh, this court granting leave and our materials having to be filed did the Crown say, well, we'll negotiate with you. I submit a mere declaration here is not sufficient to do justice between the parties. And uh, I submit that this court can find uh, that the limitation period did not begin to run until Section 35, or in the alternative, that the limitation clause they rely upon, Section 5G, is still uh, subject to the limited class rule. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you to all uh, lawyers for your submissions. The court will take the case under advisement. Thank you.